kids behind the bus time. From the NHRL studios in Norwalk, Connecticut, this is Behind the Bots, the podcast that brings you the stories of the builders behind the bots. I'm Chris. I'm Luke. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kyle. And today on the podcast, our interview with Quantum Captains James Cooper and Grant Cooper. We'll wrap up the show with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. If you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, Player FM, and Podbean. You can follow us on Facebook at Behind the Bots and tell a friend. We really appreciate your support. Time for this week's Combat Robotics News. I have two news items for you today. First up, catch live robot combat this weekend in Southern California, Missouri, Tennessee, and England. There are two events happening this Saturday in England. They'll be fighting Beetleweights at the University of Chichester and Sportsman 30-Pounders at the Sutton Grange Farm just north of York. In Missouri, Merca is back in action in Odessa this Saturday with a 32-bot Antweight qualifier event at the Odessa Prime Outlets. In Tennessee, Grind City Robot Combat is running a builders-only closed-door competition on Saturday with fairyweights, antweights, plastic ants, and beetles in Bartlett. But the big competition this weekend will be in Walnut, California, where Mad Catter Captain Martin Mason is running a two-day event at Mount Sac Community College, where they'll be running fairyweights, antweights, plastic ants, beetles, 12-pounders, and 30-pounders in their brand-new Combat Robotics Big Box. Nearly 100 robots are registered for this event, including NHRL favorites Lynx, Droopy, Wumbo, and a brand new beetle from Thagomizer builder Sean Becker named StrikePoint. Check out details on these events and more at robotcombatevents.com and Bristol Bot Builders. And finally, BattleBots teams and captains are holding major end-of-season watch parties in Silicon Valley and Massachusetts. In Silicon Valley, the builders behind Tantrum, Blip, Malice, Scorpios, Glitch, Hijinks, Ghost Raptor, and Free Shipping will be hosting an end-of-season watch party next Thursday at the Tech Museum in San Jose. Tickets cost $20 each and include a meet-and-greet with the builders and the chance to take photos with their robots. Not to be outdone, in Massachusetts, the builders behind Sawblaze, Valkyrie, Ribot, Bloodsport, Starchild, and Ripperoni are hosting a season finale viewing party of their own at the Capitol Theater in Arlington. Tickets there cost just $5 each. Check out details on these events on the Sawblaze and Tantrum Facebook pages or search for them on Eventbrite. And that's it for this week's news. All right, let's take a look back at episode 17 of BattleBots, which aired this past Thursday. It was a bracket buster of an evening where we bid an early farewell to Fusion, Switchback, Blip, Cobalt, Deathbroll, Beta, Quantum, and Ripperoni. While Minotaur, Malice, Sawblaze, Monsoon, Hydra, Whiplash, Ribot, and Black Dragon advanced to the round of 16. I want to pause here. Uh, it was a very difficult uh, week for predictions. Uh, really, a lot of people were surprised by the outcome of some of these fights. I would love to get your thoughts on last Thursday's action. Well, first of all, I guess I'll say that this was a really, really exciting episode. Um, almost every fight was, you know, finale worthy. Um, I don't know what it is. It's not like the matchups are that much different in the round of 32 than they are during the regular season, but it's just like, the level of fights that we're seeing are, are I feel like so much more exciting. Um, but I really loved the black dragon and Ripperoni fight. I mean, that was a slug match back and forth. Mm. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And I think it like, man, just 
Ripperoni is so well driven. And I think that that is, um, has been kind of like overshadowed by the theme and how fun they are. But like Fred Moore is doing a really awesome job with Ripperoni. And, you know, they really gave Black Dragon a run for their money. And Black Dragon, again, caught on glorious fire. <laughs> but <laughs> it didn't matter. They still won. But uh, man, what a season for Ripperoni. There's like no shame in going out um, the way that they did because that was a great fight. Also, Lindsay, even at even at the end of that fight, sorry, uh, even at the end of that fight, their flywheel died, right. and they like Fred was doing a great job keeping a, keeping a handle on that thing. I mean, I think it eventually is what did him in, but like that thing looks impossible to drive without the flywheel, yeah. and he did great. Yeah, it's like it would be like driving, you know, a big rig, and then your power steering goes out, and just still keeping this thing on the road. That's pretty <laughs> crazy when you really think about it. Hope it's not on a nice road. Oh. <laughs> I think I think people uh people just kind of anthropomorphize Ripperoni just because they come out with just these gloriously, you know, stereotypically Italian pizza themed uh, you know, pizzeria outfits and the uh the, the theming is just so fun. But if they think if they planted if they painted that thing all black and called it like Skull Crusher, like people would just be, uh, you know, saying it's the most metal robot, you know, to come out of BattleBots in years. Like it is so um, unpredictable. Like it is able to hit you uh, head on and then come down on you uh, when it's you know pivoting and hit you in a completely mm-hmm. unexpected place. That disc is just huge hugely uh, heavy and punishing and you just have no idea what's going to happen next with that robot it is so exciting to watch it is probably impossible to plan for because you know you're going to get hit you know you can't you can't outfork ripperoni it's just going to come down on you in some weird side of your robot it is it's amazing i i love that robot i think that it is a shoe in for rookie of the year obviously and uh, if they can get that flywheel working um, throughout the entire season, I think that we are looking at a top eight, top four robot uh, for season eight for sure. Just just to touch on your point uh, that you made only a moment ago, it's it's the bot is incredible, and that's that's half the equation. Uh, the Omega folks are the other half, and they are incredible. And just like you said, if it was like if they painted it black, and you know it was Skull Cruncher or whatever. They wouldn't just come out like with like a metal kind of flavor. They would come out like a, a Swedish uh, <laughs> black metal like death band uh, that are yeah. just kind of like vomiting blood <laughs> and bats are just flying around. Th- that I mean, that's who they are. Like they are, and I'm using this term in the best way possible. They are showboats. They are yeah. fantastic to watch. They commit. And they, they know commit. how to. They know how to command. They know how to command the crowd and. The fact that you have kind of a silly theme, uh, which, by the way, as a DeSico, an Italian, I can tell you that we all do dress and look like that. <laughs> um, True. True. I, I would say, though, that, you know, they 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 had this kind of silly bot. They have literally the entire battle bots arena shouting pizza, pizza, yeah. pizza. And it's just like. Go to another place in the world and try to get people to do that, you know, and. <laughs> It has a lot to do with them. It's they're they're just incredible people. Do you know what blew my mind about the interview that we had with uh, Miss Zolnikov at the end of the episode? Which, by the way, I love these um, the 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 Road to the Giant Nut 
um, specials they're doing at the end of these episodes. They're great. Uh, this, the body of this bot, the chassis of this bot is billet UHMW. <laughs> like what? <laughs> That's absurd. Wow. And she's like, we're so glad it held together. And it's like, well, yeah, you, you built a plastic robot and threw it into the death circle. Like that's crazy to me. And it did so well. Like that's insane. Yeah. Round of 32, their first year. The bot is a brilliant piece of engineering, just an absolutely amazing work of art. And uh, yeah, Fred Moore's driving. I mean, he is chaos incarnate and he does such a great job. Like there's you can't say enough about that guy. He's so underrated as a driver. Yeah, Uh, I don't want Black Dragon, though, to get lost in all of this. I mean, like their interview, their post fight interview like just made me fall in love with them all over again yeah yeah i am such a fan of theirs they are so sweet and i feel like they embody what is so good about this sport and you know win or lose we you know we saw them get knocked out in the episode before this um but they're always just like making the best of it and um man i'm i'm really rooting for them i think they're great and you know, it's not a season of battle bots if uh, Black Dragon doesn't catch on fire and continue to, you know, work until <laughs> three minutes. Catch ago. on fire and actually win the fight. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but can we, speaking of emotional moments, can we talk about Cobalt versus Monsoon for a second? Oh my God. Yes, please. Um, okay. Like that, those boys on Monsoon got to face their heroes, their legitimate childhood heroes and win. And that is like the coolest thing in the entire world. I am so glad the selection committee booked it like this. That was just a great moment. It was such a cool like passing of the torch. And it's all because like the... Tom's driving, man. Tom, that move he pulled where he like gyroed his bot back upside down so he could go back at him with that cool pivot design. Beautiful move, like just textbook perfect driving of that bot. Uh, That was a phenomenal fight. And with those two weapons, that could have gone either way super fast. In an instant, that could have been a completely different fight. Um, so cheers to them. That was just such a cool moment and so emotional afterwards. And uh, the the relationship, the the bromance between Tim and Tom is maybe my favorite relationship story in BattleBots right now. I know this is a cliche to say, but like it holds true. Get you someone who looks uh, at you like Tim Rackers looks at Tom. <laughs> <laughs> The level of just love and awe and like tears in his eyes, it made it made me emotional. <laughs> Not that that's hard to do, but I was like, oh my god, look at look at them. They're so happy. Um Yeah. That was and that it was just an incredible match. I there was a point in time, and, and Chris actually said this um right after the match ended, that like I didn't think that there was a single bot that could beat Cobalt. Um, they were just for, you know, a point in time and, and this season too, like so dominant. Um, but Monsoon really, really earned that one. Yeah, boy, they got a tough one in the next round, don't they? Whew. Yeah. A rematch, right? It is going to be Sawblaze. So is that a rematch? Did they face them before? I think, uh, like season three. Yes. 
No way. That's crazy. Yeah. They've uh yeah. They've changed quite a bit since then. <laughs> yeah, that's they're two very different machines. I the the giant verticals, you, they've been a real problem for Sawblaze in the past. That's going to be interesting. Kyle, I feel like we are skipping ahead to your predictions, so uh, let's just get into it. Um, as I said at the top, this was a bracket buster of a week. There were zero people out of 68 who sent in predictions who managed to call all eight fights correctly. However, there were two people who managed to call seven out of eight fights correctly, which is itself incredible. Two out of 68. Those two were uh, Elizabeth Nightmare and our own Kyle Kroos. Kyle, congratulations. Yay, thank you. This was not an easy one. Kyle, Kyle I feel like your, uh, your contrarian nature finally paid off. You know, like you, you had some dark horse picks here and they came through. Um, there were several big upsets of the night. Um, Quantum versus Ribot. Cobalt versus Monsoon and Switchback versus Malice, with the majority of people thinking Quantum, Cobalt, and Switchback would win. So uh, well done there. Uh, you only fell to one of those traps. Yep. All right, uh, well, let's get into this week's predictions with our own Kyle Kroos. Uh, now, again, unfortunately, we don't know what order these fights are going to be aired in, so we're just going to go straight down the line, starting with the number one ranked Minotaur versus the number 17 ranked Malice. Oh, man, that's going to be so much fun. Um, first of all, A, I would have said Malice in the last uh, episode had I known this was the week that Bunny had her accident and Ray Billings joined the team. Um, I knew that happened just because they like Bunny posted her injury stuff on social media. I just didn't know that was this week. Um, yeah. that's crazy. Uh, but you know, great get for the team as far as like somebody to help carry a bit of Bunny's load. Um, yeah. You know, they just picked up this guy. He was around. He he helped. It yeah. was great. Um, yeah. In this particular case, though, it, yeah, this is going to be all the bull. Minotaur. Okay. Minotaur. Um, yeah, very quickly, just before we, I don't know, uh, gloss over this. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Bunny was not injured, like, working on a robot. She was injured in the parking lot. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, like, she was wearing the hat because she got a, a cut on her on her forehead. Um, she got, like, a little concussion, too, didn't that, she? I, I, I'm not sure. I, I didn't ask. Uh, but I, I, I do know that she was injured. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I know that she was she wrote that, you know, going into this fight, she was really worried that um, people were going to freak out when she came out with a huge bandage on her head. And Ray Billings, her friend, stepped up and said, I'm going to put on a Malice shirt and I'll go out with you. And that is just so heartwarming and wholesome. And that's um, really cool. Yeah. You know, like uh, Ray is a certified good egg. So uh, keep on being you, Ray Billings. Um, so, yeah. Hashtag cool. greatest villain ever. <laughs> True. <laughs> yes. least believable villain ever um okay uh kyle on to uh the number two ranked riptide versus the number 18 ranked hypershock as much as i want to say that will bales is finally going to give this kid what he deserves i don't feel that way I, the, the bots don't match up well the geometry of the weapons don't match up well um, it's almost like Riptide was allowed to build like a perfect vert meta or something. It's weird. Um, yeah, I, I don't see that working. So that's going to be Riptide. 
Okay. On to the number three ranked Witch Doctor versus the number 14 ranked Lockjaw. I cannot. This is going to be so much fun. I don't. I I hate betting against Lockjaw, but I have to bet. It's like it's it's finals time. I'm going to have to bet against Lockjaw. So this is going to be Witch Doctor. Okay. Uh, number four ranked Hydra versus the number twenty ranked Whiplash. Oh man, this is gonna happen. I believe that this this is also a, a, rematch. a rematch. Yeah, I think. I mean, did you guys see those flips? Did you see what happened to that poor crocodile? I know. I was sad. Was that was the most amazing thing. I was sad uh, that we didn't talk about it because I feel like I've never been a huge Hydra fan, but that match really kind of Rec- made me a believer. Records were set for yeah. distance. Yeah, that was like the best the best flipper match period the end in BattleBots so far. And like props to Death Roll, it would just half the time land right side up and keep on going like literally nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's reminiscent of that fight they had with Endgame a few years ago where they both just kept knocking each other across the arena <laughs> and coming right back at it. Yeah. Um it's just a beautiful machine, like so well built, so well thought, like thought out, but yeah, it got tossed way too many times. Like something was bound to break. Um yeah, no, this is going to go to Hydra. I mean, if they're flipping like that, it, it, I don't know what's beating Hydra at this point. <laughs> Interesting. So the uh, the only non uh, you know vert uh, metabot is going to remain alive here on your bracket card. That's pretty cool. Um, all right, the number six ranked huge versus the number twenty two ranked Mad Catter. Kyle, your prediction. The Mad Catter is what huge was made to break, uh, and I. I am so sorry, but what was that man thinking? Talking about the huge poon and not. Like, did he think that that was, like, not going to be taken the way that it was taken? He seemed genuinely shocked when people started laughing and making faces about that. Um, I don't have faith in the huge poon. I think that I think that this is going to be a huge win. Okay. Uh, on to the next fight of the night. Number seven ranked Endgame versus the number 10 ranked Copperhead. Careful, Kyle. Careful. Don't hurt anybody's feelings. Uh, yeah, no, this is a tough matchup for both of these teams. Um, it, it's just there isn't much ground game when it comes to Copperhead. There's a lot of ground game when it comes to the ends of games. Yeah, like an obnoxious amount, Kyle. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, if I had to, if I had to, like, really boil this one down, it's hard to bet against those Kiwis. I'm gonna go with them. Okay. Sorry, sorry, guys. I love you. It's just, you know, one-time Golden Bolt winner, one-time Giant Nut winner. I feel like it might be a safe bet. I mean, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> we put forks on the bot this time, and uh, maybe we cut the ground oh. game. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe Clyde. Maybe. Yeah, probably not. But maybe, uh, maybe sure. Clyde Magnuson went inside Endgame and just you know snipped a few wires before the match started. Hey, you know, just a little snippy snip. What you gonna do? <laughs> uh, all right, we have two left here. The number eight ranked Sablaze versus the number twenty four ranked Monsoon. Yeah, this is gonna go to Jameson Go and Sablaze. Listen, I love the Monsoon boys. I really do. But I was thinking about this after we talked about it earlier. Uh, remember that one time that Uppercut blew the gas tank off Sawblaze and caused all kinds of damage and won that fight against them? Yeah, of course. I think that's 
I think that's the last time a giant vert is going to beat Jameson Go. I'm now of the theory that like if one meta has beaten Jameson Go, the next version of it is not going to be able to. Like he is he is just that uh much of an adaptive thinker and engineer. Uh so one giant spinny spin uh, broke his bot once it's not going to happen again right and finally our undercard fight of the night i don't know why i called it that it's just our low two lowest ranked bots number 28 ranked ribot versus the number 21 ranked black dragon kyle your prediction you know what a ridiculous card yeah that the two lowest bots by the way are ribot and black dragon yeah. like what a crazy amount like group of fights tonight um Man, this is not going to be easy for the Ribot boys. It, it's like, I'm so glad they got their groove back. I'm so glad they won that last fight. They really needed it. Uh, but I think this is going to have to go to Black Dragon. Good. All right. Uh, if you think you're smarter than a Kyle, go to our Facebook page later today to send us your predictions. After the break, we'll return with our interview with James and Grant Cooper. This week on the podcast, we have two very special returning guests, James and Grant Cooper. The brothers have returned to BattleBots after three long years with their gorgeous, gorgeous crusher bot slash what I would consider an RP's Quantum, which went on to dominate the competition with a 4-0 record, earning them a fifth seed overall in the competition. Outside of BattleBots, James and Grant have had an illustrious robotics career, having built the house bots for Robot Wars, fighting and winning King of Bots in China with their bot Spectre, and running a creative studio called Robo Challenge in the UK. We're very excited to have them back in the studio with us for the first time since August of 2020, so welcome back to the show, James and Grant. Uh, thank you very much for having us. It's, a, it's always quite strange when you hear back what, to, what we've been up to. It seems like very often a bit. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. great to be back. It doesn't seem like that long ago. I know, like uh, uh, the last three years have been both like a blink of the, an eye and also somehow an entire century. I don't really know how <laughs> that works, but um, yeah, we're we're really happy. We don't know what we've done for the last three years, but we know. So, um, something that we like to do on the show when we have more than one guest is I'll ask uh, each of you to introduce each other. And hopefully since you're brothers, it should not be too difficult for you. Um, so James, would you like to go first and introduce Grant? This, this is my brother, Grant. I work with Grant at Robo Challenge and we're both um, very dedicated and ambitious people. Grant's the lead driver on Quantum. So he's the reason why we lost a robot. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, yeah, Grant and I push each other a lot. Um, we, we're really focused, driven people. Um, and um, yeah, some of the work that Grant does, especially on the machining, is really second to none and really helps to bring our, um, our A game to quantum. I love it. I love it. And Grant, would you like to introduce James to us? Yeah, so this is James, as he said, my brother. Um, we've worked together now for probably 16, 17 years on Robo Challenge. Um, we both sort of competed against each other in the lower weight classes over the years. And Spectre and Quantum are the first sort of machines, heavyweights at least, we've sort of built together to compete. James 
predominantly works the the weapons on on quantum and in terms of design and various bits like that james does the majority of like the generative design side of things so all that sort of bone like structure side of things is one of the key things of of james's work that you'll see in the machine we actually we have a lot of fan questions talking about the generative design so uh james when we get to that uh Hopefully you can fill us in a little bit, but I love it. Awesome. Thank you uh, for that. And so um, first, I just really want to congratulate both of you on such a stunning performance this season. Um, The bot looked so good. It performed so well. Um, You know, there's a lot of sentiment and the questions that we received that like you've, you know, put to rest this idea that crushers can't be competitive. You, You clearly you know, showed that it is a very, you know, can be a very dominant uh, design. And then on top of that, I was so lucky to be in, um, you know, the pits this season. And I took a few uh, sneak peeks of Quantum. Uh, uh, you were kind of situated over by like the lunch <laughs> lunch table. So whenever, <laughs> yeah, I was always like making it a point to go look at it up close. And it's somehow even more beautiful um in person than it is on tv and it, and it you know it just looks so good on tv um, thank you thank you it's really appreciated obviously grant and i spend months figuring out how we're going to make this thing and it gradually evolves from this digital piece which we're fed up of looking at the screen and then it starts to come to life and again that gets us excited but We've been in and around the machine for a long time, so it's it's really nice to be able to come to something like BattleBots and share what we've been working on, but also to see what other people are doing. We get as excited about seeing how Blip works and what um, uh, Hypershock's new parts, and you have a look at it in close detail and you see the attention to detail that's been put into there that just doesn't come across on camera, and um, you know, we could spend... The entire battle bus just going around talking. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the fun of it, right? It's like it's half, you know, being there for the robots and like the, the fighting aspect of it. And then the other half is the learning aspect where you get to see what other designers and engineers and roboteers have come up with and, you know, their solutions for different challenges. And it's it, it's so cool. I mean, and that comes in all sorts of forms as well. Like even so you, you've got some things like Hypershock, which have a lot of attention to detail and really beautiful visually. But then you, you speak to the end game guys and, and you see that their passion, their focus has gone into the internals of the machine. And, and, and it's really, it's almost its own art form in how it works internally and how it all has um, individual uh, sort of pods almost in there. They all have backups and backups and backups and, and they know exactly how all the systems work and how how um, if a receiver fails, it triggers, goes on to the next one. And you, you can see that their passion has gone into the functionality of the machine and um, getting the absolute optimal performance in the BattleBots arena. So, um, yeah, that, that com- art comes in all sorts of shapes, I think, at BattleBots. And I imagine, you know, what. This season, especially because it had been a couple of years with COVID and travel restrictions and all of that, it had been a little while since you, you know, were able to be there in person and look at the bots up close. Was there anything that stood out to you um, 
you know, any big changes that, you know, you noticed this time around that weren't necessarily present a couple of years ago? I mean, the, the biggest thing is how many robots and spares people are bringing. We've, we've always turned up with one robot and a, a couple of spares. And when we, when we last came, it was sort of the first time that people were really starting to bring two robots as such. But this time around, it's on a different level. And, and to be completely honest, I don't know how we can sustain it sort of going forward and, and keeping up with the other guys in terms of people have got like three, four robots worth of stuff or some of them even more. I think Lucky had six chassis. Um, Whoa. Um, it's borderline like motorsport yeah. now, isn't it? Which, which is great for the sport if that kind of money's coming into it. But yeah, being able to compete with that is... Is mighty tricky, and just but not, not just in not not just in cost, but in in manpower and and time. Yeah. Like to to service that many sort of keep machines going, where you've got four separate machines, you've got almost separate teams working on everything, and yeah, it's a. There's there's James and I that do obviously know the machine inside out, and we've got Henry and Rob this time round. Rob joined us for the first time, who are who are very helpful. But it's it's James and I really that do the design and the and the build work. So we we know the thing inside out. But a lot of other teams they have some of them six, eight, ten, twelve people um, who've been involved in the build, and they can just jump on it like an F one team and uh, just get that thing stripped down and <laughs> sorted really quickly. So yeah, it's um, it, it's a whole different mindset and and, and game from when it was um, sort of three, four, five years ago now. Um, yeah, and actually one of the questions that I had written before, you know, getting into some of the listener questions was asking, is it true, like, do you have only one frame? Um, and then if so, like, does that change how you approach some of the matches during the regular season? Like, if you're a bot that has four frames and you have, you know, essentially four robots that could be swapped in at any time, you know, it might affect how you approach a match but like when you have black cat uh not black cat or when you have black dragon or emulsifier like very destructive bots does that like come into play because you know that you have um like a more limited set of um parts and components and whatnot i, I don't know whether it makes it better or worse i, I think to be honest it, it probably helps us more in that we know how much work we we a slight bend in that front wedge and it took us an entire day, well, I think two days to to recut and weld all that wedge back up um, to get it fitting on the machine, and so the the repairs for us are a pretty substantial part of the event. But it's I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. When you're in the arena, obviously you're doing everything you can to not get hit, and we're not necessarily thinking, oh, we've only got one of these, or the head might get cut off. You do everything you can in that battle to win. Um, where if it means cutting the head off, we'll we'll come up with something there. Whether we need to make a hardox muzzle or something for the head to patch it back together, we'll we'll always find a way of getting it working. Um, it just might require a lot more effort than others. And going in with that mindset, I mean, I don't think it changes too much during a battle. We're always just trying to win at whatever the cost. For me, what one thing that that was sort of like a, a bit of a, a trigger point for me was that classic um, Endgame Ripperoni. So Endgame was stuck in the slots and they were asking Ripperoni to tear them a new one. <laughs> but because they, the, the consequence of writing that robot off 
were less than the consequence of losing. And that that's that for me was where it's like, ah, this, this is a different game now because they would rather have that spinner going to the rear of the robot at full chat because it gives them a chance to win. For us, if, if we were stuck in the... And this way we have a chat with teams before each fight. If Quantum's dead, just leave it. Don't, don't go in again because if you... If we took a spinner hit to the back of the robot, that would go straight through the cylinder. There's only one cylinder, you know, that, that's us out then. You know, we, we're done for. So for us, if we're stuck in the floor and it's a fight night, like, we'll take the loss and be able to fight again. Whereas that's kind of different now with a lot of other teams. Um, they're able to go like, let's take that extra hit because we may be able to come back and win it. If they write off a chassis, well, too bad. You know, and and that that's not good. It's not and it's not bad. It's just different. You know that that's how BattleBots has evolved. So we obviously have some spares. But we've got some spare bulkheads that we machine up. Um, we only have one heads, one hydraulic system, one cylinder. Um, we're very limited on what we bring because we can't afford to. But we also, as Grant said, there's so much time that goes into machining Quantum's head mm-hmm. and the rib cage on the back that. We just can't put that much effort in to go, okay, well, we can fry that off because we'll make another one. Um, but, but also, there's what, six, six weeks' notice, I think it was, from being fully accepted onto the show to actually having to ship the robots. And there's only so much you can you can build in that. We don't outsource anything in the build of, of Quantum. We do everything in-house, all the, the sheet metal work, all the CNC machining um even the motors and everything we we, we build in house um wow. with, with and uh, and so there's only so much time we can do things and a lot of teams are put in a position where that they they I, I wouldn't say desperate to be on the show but it's such a, a big thing for them to be on the show that they will take a lot of risk and they'll build the robots beforehand they can get sponsors lined up before anyone's even accepted and we've seen, firstly, with COVID, there's no guarantee that internationals could even go to this series. Um, so we had to be fairly careful with that. But also, if if we didn't get accepted for any reason, and with the numbers of teams this season dropping um, from 64, I think it is, to about 50, um, there's a lot of very good robots that were there built and ready that, that didn't get on the show. And we couldn't, we just couldn't afford to, because we're, we're fully self-funded, to spend all that time and money building the machine to then not be able to go. Um, so we have to wait until we're accepted, really. Yeah, there's one thing to build Quantum, but we, we also work for ourselves. So when we're building Quantum, that's it. Then all our projects go on hold until Quantum's finished because it's such a, a heavy resource of time that goes into designing and making Quantum that you know we can't get on with normal work. So it's that balance of going... We can't just work on quantum forever. We'd love to, um, but you know, it's, it's it's that risk and the, and how much cost we can put into the machine that makes it what it is. But if anyone does want to cash sponsor it so we can start earlier at less risk, then uh, you're more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I mean, I think you know it's just it's so incredible because you know the the more I learn, having been on a team last season and. Um, you know, the more I see like what goes in behind the scenes, you know, it, it, it is pretty common practice to send out, 
your parts and have other people machine them. And that makes it a little more possible to have a couple copies of something. But like, like you said, you know, this, this is now taking time away from your business, like your actual day job to do the machining for, for quantum. And, you know, I think, I just think it's, it's so cool on one hand, you know, because you just the design from the ground up and then the actual building, like you are so involved in every single aspect of this robot. Um, and you know, I think that's really neat and it's, you know, it's hard cause it, it means that you can only, you know, kind of make one head, but that one head is so much more incredible than anyone else out there could make because it's you, you are the ones who are doing it. Um, and so I think, you know, there's just that, that trade off there, but, um, it, it is such an incredible robot that, you know, whatever you're doing, you're, you're doing it right. It's all the teams are working absolutely flat out to be on BattleBots and just because they're not, you know, aesthetically, they may be different to us or maybe they outsource the components that they're, they're not then sat on a beach waiting for the components. Oh, to no, I didn't, I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just mean for, for people listening, you know, we, we just use all of our time and money to make the one thing that we have and the other teams have bigger budgets or bigger numbers of people and that allows them to create like the copies, the the multiples up. But you know, everybody's working flat out to be at BattleBots and be as prepared as you can possibly be. But um, also everyone's everyone on the show are doing it for different reasons. A lot of people aren't that fussed about the builds. They just want to compete on the show and be part of it. Others I'm bothered about the visuals and they just want to make the perfect fighting machine, whether it looks like a box or not. Um, it's all about the building the absolute best machine to win the competition. For us, it's about trying to do something different, which is why we went with the crusher, trying to push the boundaries of what we can do. Um, and we enjoy the design and the build side of things. And we, without that, the the fighting side of things is is more sort of the secondary side of it for me. Um, I really enjoy sort of seeing what we can do with with the, yeah it, with, with sort of I say limited resources. We do have some some nice equipment to build these things with, but all of our first machines and Spectre and the first Quantum were all built on very cheap CNC machines um, and and a lot of things by hand as well, and a lot of it still is done by hand. And it's for us. It's a challenge. It is we enjoy sort of seeing what we can do and trying to push the, the boundaries every every year. And every time we come back with new ideas and how we can improve it, and there, there's a lot of subtle changes to quantum this year that probably a lot of people won't see, but it's actually been quite a big sort of rework on the machine. Um, and it's just as we get new equipment or we learn new things, we, we try to put as much of that into the machine as we can. And that that's where the enjoyment uh, comes in for me. Yeah. I mean, that kind of leads in nicely to my next question. So, you know, like this season really felt like a homecoming in a sense, because there were so many international teams that were finally able to compete again after, you know, having, you know, to take a couple of years off. So like, what was it like preparing for this new season? Um, what were some of the things that you did to get the bot ready? You mentioned, you know, some, some changes and like, what were your feelings and expectations heading into it? 
One of the one of the key things for us coming into this one is that we'd been at the game for a few years and a lot of the US teams have been able to keep going to BattleBots and making those advancements and changes and and the arena floor had changed in that time and various other bits. And so we were sort of going on one hand to use this year as a bit of an experiment and say, let's make some of the some of the nicer changes that we wanted to make, like um, improving the jaw. A lot of people won't realise we've saved a lot of weight out of the jaw and improved strength in certain areas. Um, we've added the extra teeth to give us an advantage in, in when the main teeth get pulled off. One of the key ones is the self-writer. Um, we had issues at King of Bots um, self-writing with the titanium one multiple times. So we've gone to the, the aluminium rib cage on the back and just lot, we've made lots of little improvements that probably a lot of people won't notice. Every panel of armor, is there's nothing you can see from the outside that is the same as the 2019 version, but it's that not. actually because all the armor got thrown in the bin. Well, <laughs> there is that. But it, it, all of, we, we went to go and collect the armor. For, there's some people that's used to make it for us, and uh, unfortunately they lost it. A great big sheet of titanium disappeared. Three so meter by two meter sheet of titanium. Oh, no. <laughs> so we, we bought a new sheet, and with like a week to go, we were learning how to new, use our new press break and folded all the new titanium armor back. No pressure, no pressure. No. <laughs> but the, but the, the, the key thing for this year really was that we've got a lot of ideas we want to do with quantum, um, certainly on the hydraulic system side of things and various improvements. But we didn't want to just go full in this series with all of those improvements and realise that we were sort of way off the mark because all the other teams have advanced so much. So we wanted to make some of the core changes that were necessary um, and then go this year without really high expectations and just go and try and enjoy it and use it as a learning curve as much as possible, come back with a load of data that then we can start the full redesign um, from this stage. And so, yeah, it, that, that was sort of our, our mindsets during the design and build phase of this one. Beautiful. Um, all right. Well, we have a bunch of listener questions, so I'm going to jump right into them. The first one here is from Chad Williams. He starts us off with a question that is on everybody's mind. Quantum is like a work of art as well as a scary robot to face. How is that beautiful crusher made? Is it cast, machined, etc.? So the the all of the internals, the framework and the heads and the rib cage, they're all machined from the solid blocks. Um it's all designed to be machined on the three axis, because that, that's all we had when we designed them. So you could actually machine them on like the tarmac at um, at Backerbots. It take a long time, of course, but um, it, it was designed for us to be able to make it and not make require multi-million pound machines to do that. So yeah, the, the whole thing is um, internally all, all the aluminium is machined from blocks. And I, I think if if I remember rightly, um, it was about six hundred kilo of aluminium blocks that we used to uh to machine down for this machine wow yeah a lot a lot of scrap material once you've uh, machined it all away wow that is that's a lot <laughs> are you able to like reuse yeah. that for other projects then no. not really no it all comes off in uh, little chips and goes in multiple big skips and taken away oh wow <laughs> all of the aluminium is about 
in quantum's about 24 kilos i think wow so we have a another question uh somewhat related from regan bachelor hey uh grant and james would you begin when you began designing quantum or any bottle bot for that matter where do you start do you design around a particular aspect of the bot or just have a general idea or picture of the bot and then build it? Uh, and then lastly, also, did you intend to make quantum so aesthetically pleasing or was that coincidental? So I think when, when we're building a robot, you have to know what, what it is that you want it to do. So when, when we were designing the first Spectre, for argument's sake, we knew we wanted to make a crusher. So there's our weapon. The next thing you go is, well, if it is a crusher and we want to do a reasonable amount of damage, how much power does that crusher need? So we went with 22 tons. That that would make it by a long way the most powerful crusher that had been made. So we went, well, there's the challenge. It's kind of, by the time it's on the teeth, it's probably double the power of any crusher, even like Tiberius, which was Photon Storm. So we really wanted to push the boundaries. So that, that gives you some metrics that you can work with then. So you've got 22 tons and a crusher robot. So then you start looking at, well, how big are robots? How, do you, how big does the jaw need to open? And the, and the whole machine gradually evolves. And one of the cool things that, so when, when we were first starting to build Spectre, we, we were very conscious that every crusher before that had been thought of as a razor clone. And that's something that we were conscious not to repeat. We wanted Spectre and Quantum to be their own machines. So there were a few things that we did that went, well, this is a completely different direction to razor. Whether it looks similar in the end or not is completely different. But we, we purposely went out there to make it its own. And one of the big things that I think has actually been looking back on it now was actually a, a really big um, decision that has helped made it competitive was um, the, the design of the cylinder. Um, so we, we've got quite an unconventional design. So when we were first designing it, obviously with a normal cylinder, it would pivot at the top and the bottom and those parts would extend and contract. And by having it like that, we needed a much bigger chassis to contain all the loads. So wherever the cylinder's connected, um, that portion of the chassis has to be able to take the load that's being applied by the hydraulic system. When you put in 22 tons through your chassis, that, that's quite a lot. So we designed this quite clever cylinder that had knuckles and pivot points at the top of it. So it means the cylinder's machine from a massive lump of aluminium but it really shrinks down the portion of the chassis that has to take stresses and you can really see that when you take the armor off quantum um, you can see the really beefy bone structure and then like the very thin sections at the back um so yeah it was those sorts of decisions that then naturally make it start to form a shape so you you try to keep the front end as shallow as possible to get get robots up there as easily as possible. You're getting a jaw that can kind of get most robots within it. Um, and obviously a critical element of that is the drive and the balance. So I'll let Grant talk about this. Yeah, so one thing that we thought of from the start is that 
you don't necessarily need a weapon to win a fight. You can win it, and, and Beta's shown really well in, in the past. Even without firing its hammer, you can you can dominate your opponent if you've got a, a good drive system. And although we we wanted to use a weapon as much as we can, we felt that it's equally as important to make sure that if that weapon fails, we can have control at all times. And with a with a crusher, that accuracy and the drive system is is more important than probably any other machine, really, um, because the crush is quite slow. We don't have a, a very quick reacting weapon. And so keeping on your opponent and having the center of gravity and all this sort of thing right was was one of the key things that we started looking at early on. So the, the width of that drive system, sort of the, the main wheelbase, was, was set pretty early on. There were minor tweaks to that as we started adding weight into the, into the CAD models and started working out the CFG. Um, but yeah, between that and the weapon system, that really gave us an overall sort of size and shape of, of the key part of the machine then. And then you're, you're packaging the machine around the armour. Um, one of the concepts that we had, we knew that weight was going to be critical, so we spent a lot of time uh, optimising it even before generative design. And but one of the first concepts that we agreed on was that if we don't get hit, we don't need armour. And so we have relatively thin armour. Well, we have very thin armour around the sides and back of the robots that they're extremely vulnerable. And you go, well, that that's kind of makes your machine very susceptible to getting impacts. Um, everybody knows that Quantum can't take impacts like that. Um, but we're kind of okay with that because it... We could go double the thickness on the armor, and if we got an impact, it's going to be bad. You know, it's if we put hard ups there, you're still not going to stop cobalt going through the side of it. So, if you can't stop it, why bother trying? And you're wasting weight trying to stop it. So we worked out. So we've got like crumple areas in the robots where it can take big impacts, tear the side off the machine, but actually the fundamentals of the robot inside are still all okay. Um, yeah, we might be out and lost, but you know we can go into our next fight in a in a good position. So it's just working. I think when you're designing a robot, it's working out those principles of the robot. What, what's it got to do? How's it going to deliver that weapon? And then how do you package everything around that? And and the form will start to come together naturally from that. Yeah, it's at that point really where we started to get a really good grasp for what quantum inspector are um that's where sort of the sort of the beast style sort of design come into it um and that's where we sort of started looking at like motor placements was quite critical to try and get that free-flowing sort of shallow side armor so that we didn't just have big boxy sides and things and we made a conscious decision early on that we wanted to sort of keep the armor to a minimum um in terms of size so that we could show off as much of the actual machine and try and show the character of uh, of this sort of beast as such, and that that was part of the reason with going with two teeth early on. And that was actually, I think, John Reed was over at the office one day when we were looking at basic designs for this, and we had a sketch with uh, two teeth and one. And John was instantly like, "Oh, you should make it a dragon. Have these have these big teeth on there, big two teeth. Turn it into a dragon." And we. <laughs> Although it was a very nice idea and we did stick to the, the two teeth and that sort of reinforced it for us, it was very difficult and, and still is to say this is what quantum is. There's no, oh, we want to create a dog or we want to create a dragon. 
it's it's its own sort of beast and machine. Uh, we've tried to let the design and working out the correct strength from doing the FEA and now generative design on there to sort of create that form of skull. That's not just something we designed on paper and then said, let's put that into CAD. It's it's that shape because that's the best shape to well, for that crushing jaw. And the the side armor and the all the titanium and bits on there, they're then designed to try and highlight those areas. So we've gone for sort of this organic um, sort of creature-like structure inside and, and all the machined aluminium. But then that's clad in this sort of sleek, sort of almost Lamborghini-style bodywork as such. And we try to make those very contrasting in design to, to make each of those stand out. Um, but yeah, we, we certainly don't come up with the robot idea, sketch down what we want and then design from that. It's all about choosing the weapon specs, the drive specs, and all the goals that we want to achieve. And then as they start coming together in the design, that's when we start to work out what this machine is. Like what does it look like? Has it got a character? And then we sort of design to those, those strengths. And I think that that is one of the things that makes quantum look so striking the way that it does is because it's not, you, you don't look at it and think, Oh, it's this animal or that animal. And you know, it looks just like that. No, it's, it's, it's its own thing. And um, I think that's what makes it, you know, so unique and so stand out. Um, and one of the things that, that, you know, I really love about it. So while dragon sounds really cool, I'm glad that you didn't like try to like force a dragon theme or, or anything else onto it. Cause you know, it is what it is. And that's what makes it cool. I think it's got to compromise things then. If, if you do go, I'm going to make a tiger and it's going to have these big saber teeth and it's going to have this and be tiger-esque, you, you're compromising the performance to do that. Um, whereas we were, everything was about performance and then how do we have, and, and even watching Spectre in battle, you, you start to see its character when it's fighting then. You know, actually, yeah, maybe it's a, cross between like a wild dog and something else. I don't know what it is, but um, it, it is what it is. Yes. I love it. I love it. Um, all right. So we actually have some um, very insightful technical questions um, from Owen Coakley, who is uh, the builder of the Beetleweight Kaleidoscope, who often competes at NHRL. Um, all right. So get ready for some technical questions. <laughs> the first yep. being, uh, what operating pressure does Quantum run on? We run 4,000 PSI on the hydraulic system. Well, we, well, we actually have two separate systems. Um, one is for the crushing system and one's for the self-writing system. Um, we run 4,000 PSI on the, uh, on the main crushing and we run about, I think about 1,000 PSI, 1,200 PSI on the self-writer. 4,000 PSI sounds like a, a terrifying number. <laughs> yeah, we, we can in the rules go a lot higher. Oh, um, interesting. So. Yeah, we but but this is as long as you get permission. I think the limit's about three thousand, and then you need permission above that. Yeah. Um, but it, it's we've designed this to be as reliable as we can, and and valves and pumps and all sorts of things we can get working nice and reliably at that at that limit. Yeah, definitely. Um, what sort of fluid do you use in the system? Everyone knows it's spread. <laughs> <laughs> Yum. <laughs> So obviously we, we we've competed um, in China and in America 
um, with these robots. And we, we need to make sure that we can get, well, we're not actually allowed to ship hydraulic fluid around the world with the machine and we need to empty it all out before the robot shipped. So I think what Grant's saying is um, we've obviously competed around the world um, quite a bit and uh, we, we generally have to take it in a suitcase and we're not allowed to take any oil with it at that point. So you're generally looking for oil when yeah. you arrive. So it's um, so we generally look at industrial grade hydraulic fluids. We, we, we know people that um, can get us some very nice like, racing fluids and stuff, but Unless you can travel it, travel with this around the world, and it, it, taking batteries is bad enough. <laughs> yeah, I've I've heard some horror stories about uh getting those batteries back. And most of the time, we we end up sending an empty crate, and we take the robot in seven or eight um, suitcases. Wow! Are right, you probably have some questions to answer then? <laughs> yeah, we, we take. Most of the robot, most of the time in suitcases. That's wild. Um, does your two-stage pump vary the pump motor gearing? You don't have a two-stage pump. There's oh. the first. Yeah, lots of people yeah. think we have a two-stage pump. I think it's it's a bit of a misconception from something we've spoken about before in how the system works. Um, we do have a two-stage system, but it's in a, a clever valve um, system we, we've designed into the machine. Um, I think we'll do like a we're going to do a YouTube video on exactly how that works um, because we're, we're replacing it for a new concept. So stand by for um, like a deep dive into our hydraulic system coming soon. Yeah, but uh, but Ooh, e- effectively we've got a a system in there that allows it to the valve system makes it work at a higher speed and lower pressure, and then once you get to a certain um, preset pressure on there, it switches onto a different valve system. Um, and allows you to use a full pressure, but it's a bit slower. Interesting, interesting. I'm glad that I'm glad you were able to clear that up. Um, do you run any accumulators in the system? No, it, we we actually banned accumulators from robot wars because they're huh. dangerous. <laughs> well, you think you, you've got a, a ni- you've effectively got a nitrogen tank in your robot that you can't depressurize, and you put it in with a few spinners. And there's no way of knowing that that thing's, yeah, you can't disarm it safely. So it's, yeah, that, that was actually banned in by what was accumulated. Yeah, but also they're very heavy, um, extremely heavy. So we, we, we've taken the advantages you get with a, an accumulator and put those into a, a very big motor. So we run a 21 kilowatt motor so that we don't need one. Wow. Um, Okay, next one. How does Quantum's weapon lock work? How, how does the weapon lock? Well, for, for from the safety point of view, um, weapon locks are only needed on certain machines. On Quantum, it's hydraulically locked. You physically can't move. Um, you, you can't move it. You can put multiple tons of force through, and that jaw will not move. Um, because the, the valving system and the hydraulic fluid keep it locked in place. So, yeah, we, and obviously it's, it's classed as a slow moving weapon as such. So, when you're arming it up, you don't need a, a safety lock as such in there. It's actually more dangerous if we put a big um, I beam or, or something in there to try and lock it. If something triggered and it moved, all you're doing is really loading that up and putting more people in danger. So, on, on this particular design, um, weapon locks aren't required. 
Interesting. That makes sense. Is that what you wanted to know, or was it? Um, how does it look when you when it's operating? I think no. I think just like for the safety pre-fight type of thing. Okay. Um. What? So his next question is: What failed on the cylinder connection against your uh, fight in, with Robot? So on the on quantum, when we're designing things, we want we know that it's going to get broken, and so when you when you're designing your robots, you want it to be as fixable as possible. And when things fail, where possible, you want them to fail in a way that is suitable to us. And so on the on the top of the cylinder, we could machine it all from a single piece, but that, that's taking a hell of a lot of load, especially when um, if a spinner hits the heads, you've got like two and a half times the load that then goes into the hydraulic system. So we actually have like a a bolt there that um, that shears if it takes too much load, and that just pops the top off the end of the cylinder. And it's a pain if it happens in a fight because obviously you lose the head, um, but it means you get back into the back into the pits and you just take the bolt out and rebolt it back on, and you're ready for the next fight and the, the hydraulic system saved. So it, it looks bad, but actually it's it's quite a handy thing if rather than have something else fail. Smart. That that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, and so Owen's last question here is, um, what's your plan when fighting big wheel robots like huge, if you want to divulge your secrets? <laughs> have a cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure. I, we're really not a fan of measuring up robots and adding big attachments and things for them to counter it. We, we're very much a fan of you You design and build the machine before you get to the event, and that's what you fight with. Um, but if we came up against huge or something, we may have to do things we don't like. <laughs> um, because unfortunately, yeah, our, our machine is, is is very vulnerable to that sort of, uh, that sort of attack. Yeah. And good on them. They've, they've managed to find like a system that, that works against you know that they've managed to keep hold of the meta weapon but use it in a way that is that highlights weaknesses in most of the opponents um, well yeah, that was one know. of the reasons we built a crusher people just didn't expect attacks from above um <laughs> and that that's helped us <laughs> Um, all right, so we have uh, some questions here from Seth Schaefer of Bloodsport and the popular YouTube channel Just Cause Robotics, and he has um, you know a number of generative design related questions. So I know we kind of talked about it a little bit. So um, hopefully you know there's uh, something in here. But so Quantum, he starts off by saying Quantum is such an incredibly beautiful machine. The machining and design of the head are immaculate. I would love to know how you ended up with that distinctive skull-like look. Was it pure generative design, shape optimization? Did you have to coax or modify the solution to a more dinosaur-like shape, or did it just end up that way? So with um, generative, it, it was quite nice that we already built Spectre and we knew Spectre worked. So with the with the same power jaw, we knew that the FEA and everything which was done manually, it works, and we've loaded up the head to full power and we've bit, bit some robots with, with two teeth, but with all the load on one, so there was like twisting forces on the head. So we, we knew that Spectre worked, so we, there were 
So what you can do with generative design is say, well, if Spectre's head's made out of that material and it weighs 512 kilos, if you just took that material and put it in a new position, which was more optimized, you, you then have a better head out of it. So we, we use generative design um, and we applied the loads and the twisting forces onto the head. Um, and we also had some tools in there to try and we really liked the eye feature of Spectre and we wanted to keep that into Quantum. Um, so the eye is a little bit forced in there to keep, to try and keep that character into the machine. We also designed the, the, the snout is completely sculpted and all the underside of the jaw because um, we we know from past competitions you know, that the spinners will just go straight through it. So we beef up a lot of the underside of the jaw to, to help protect it and um, yeah, to, to help be able to take those impacts. So it's a combination of generative design iterations with a with some tools in there to make sure that it stays within the boundaries that we want and keeping some of the style in there and then some manual sculpting afterwards yeah and you can see on the on the new rear rib cage that's one that required a lot of manipulation to to get what we wanted on there it would have had the first generative designs came out very strange um so yeah, so it, that was started with sort of that sort of spine-like um, lumps down the back, that, those vertebrae. And so they were sculpted first and a couple of key points that we needed. And then often make multiple generative designs and pick the nicest bits we want and cut those up, stick them together and then re rework that again. So there's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's not quite as simple as it sounds of just putting some figures into the computer and it spits out a lovely looking design. There's a lot of... So there's probably 10 um, generative um, studies that we do before we get something where we go, okay, yeah, we, we like what we're getting now and it's, it's doing what we need. And as Grant said, sometimes we slice that part in half and then mirror it to, so we get some aesthetic that we want. Um, the the rib cage was all designed as, as like a half rib cage to begin with and then we we mirrored it to uh, to make sure that um, it looked as we wanted. Fascinating. I I love learning more about this. Um, Seth, Seth's next question is, do you optimize for parts to be under a specific weight or maximize strength slash weight or a bit of both? Um, it's both really. So the, the heads is, the head and the main bulkheads are a relatively easy one to do. So so we know what loads were being applied from the hydraulic system, and we know that they're, they're probably some of the highest um, loads that we were going to see in there. Um, so on the curve of the bulkheads, that, that's where the most stress is. Um, the original ones, which were manually done, um, they were absolutely on the limit. There was no safety factor in there whatsoever. Um, so we, we knew that they just about worked. Um, and putting those into generative design, we managed to reduce the stress on that part of the chassis by about 20%, and yet we took 20% of the weight out of it. Um, when we're first doing this, you do look at it and go, oh, is that going to be okay? And, and, there's, and there's things that we learn along the way, like we, we know that uh, we, we cracked all of our chassis members 
back about this time, so we know that we need to strengthen up where the um, where the drive motors are mounted. Um, so it, it's a combination of trying to hit a target weight, which we know will work because it works on Spectre. And if you do something the same weight as Spectre, it, it will definitely be a better part because it, it's simply an optimized version of that. Um, and then we do give it a, we put that into the FEA then and go, okay, well, this is now X amount stronger than what Spectre's chassis was. We can start reducing the weight on it. Um, we don't take it to its limits. We could probably push the bulkheads a little bit more um, in certain areas. Um, but yeah, so far we've not had one fail other than the the cracked sections by the uh, drive motors. That's that's pretty incredible. Um, we have one more here from Seth. On a related note, so many parts on Quantum have that generative design flair. Do you find that it's practical to use this design strategy for many applications besides the weight-obsessed BattleBots parts, or does added machining time outweigh the weight savings? It's, it's a tricky one, that. Yeah, it, it's something we, because we do all sorts of weird and wacky projects with work, we're always talking about is, is, it, is this part worth doing a generative design on or not? And from a purely cost and time point of view for a lot of our commercial projects, there's, there often aren't many areas that we've felt that generative design is the ideal choice. A lot of it can be sheet metal work with um, machine parts in there. Some things we certainly have, um, but most of our work hasn't tended to be sort of weight related. It doesn't matter if it weighs one kilo or 10 kilos, whereas the fighting robots, there's a specific weight limit and we can eke out a lot of extra performance by saving that weight. And so the physical cost or the time of physical machining is irrelevant because when you get down, for example, our hydraulic hoses, the first Spectre we used standard off-the-shelf hydraulic hoses and then we went spending thousands of pounds on some custom-made super lightweight um, aircraft hoses that's all sort of specifically made for us and they cost yeah they cost thousands of pounds but it saved us a kilo and a kilogram in weight and so the the cost and the time involved in that doesn't not doesn't matter but it is it's well worth it you pay for every gram you save effectively whereas in a in a normal engineering project a lot of the time that's not the case when you start working in uh motorsports um aerospace and things like that generative design really does start to become a big part of being very useful in, in those sorts of things where the weight savings are really critical but for for a general engineering project where that doesn't matter the machining time and design time and cost isn't isn't viable for a lot of projects but as soon as weight comes into play um it's absolutely worth it for commercial or or battle bots the, the only thing on Quantum where we we added weights for an aesthetic was probably the spines on the back of the head, and we've added like lumps on the back of the head now to sort of give it a bit more of a skull skeletal feel. But absolutely everything else from the drive gears to the inner bulkheads that people can't see, they're all generative and they're all absolutely optimised because we know that we don't need to touch them, we don't need to revise them because they are absolutely at the limits of what we were capable of doing with our skills and design capabilities and machining capabilities. 
Um, we know that we've optimized as we've gone along. We don't need to go back and go, well, how do we find another kilo? Because you're not going to find a kilo in quantum that you can just take out without having a performance impact. Fascinating. Um, thank you. Thank you for going into all that. Um, so Mammoth team member and prolific builder Brandon Bennett-Young has some questions about the future of Crushers. Um, so he says, hello, Cooper Brothers. Quantum was such a joy this year, and I've loved following the evolution of it and Spectre, especially the video series on Facebook. Um, now that you've had a chance to observe more robots at BattleBots this year, has this changed your design philosophies on some of Quantum, especially with uh, some upgrades in mind? Namely, do you see a change to the hydraulic system you may want to try, brushless on drive, etc.? I think we, granted, I are ambitious people and we don't like doing things for the sake of doing it. But for me, taking Quantum back to BattleBots is really of quite little interest without doing something special. Um, it, it was difficult, you know, difficult enough to go this time with the changes that we made. Um, so that, that's why we really pushed to get the new head and the new rib cage on there to to kind of feel like we're making progress and, and steps forward. And Grant's probably the same, but we don't like just competing on there. We, we really want to feel like we're stretching and we're pushing. And so, so when you see Quantum, even if it looks crap or doesn't look like it's changed much, you know, we put our heart and soul into making it as good as it can be. Um, we we had this uh, at um, this is fighting robots. We completely designed Spectre from scratch. Nobody could really tell, but and they all said, "Oh, it's just the same as before, isn't it?" But yeah, we put loads of effort. Absolutely, every little bit on it had been changed. It was not a single change. It wasn't a single piece that stayed the same. Um, and this last BattleBots was the first time that we've ever had parts that were the same as a previous iteration of it in some in one respect or another. Um, so we, we, there's something about just turning up and competing that doesn't really appeal, I think, personally speaking. Yeah. Um, yeah we, we've already got ideas for what we'll do next. Obviously, this we use this series as a learning curve for us. Um, we know the front end, the, the wedge game for us isn't isn't good um we need to think about how we do that because we've got we we don't like playing the wedge game because we think it it takes away from the driving and the a lot of the skill set in in the arena um and you don't want to just sit still so that you wedge it as low as it can so we we need to have a good think about how we do that but the actual having a crusher i think we've shown that that cap that can be competitive um I think the more people get scared of a crusher, the more people are going to try and counter it, which could be a could push us to the point of saying, right, well, if everyone's got big cages around the machine, hopefully it doesn't happen. Um, but if it did, we would have to rethink: do we do we come back with a crusher? But I I don't think we're at that stage yet, and and hopefully it doesn't. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Is it's it's easy to counter it's, the effort that we're putting on. Yeah, it is worth it, and. And we can still be relevant to backbots, then then we'll still be putting the effort in. But if everybody turns up with tornado cages and you just go, like we're doing all this work to just get it smashed up, 
it stops making sense then. And you go, well, are we the right fit for BattleBots anymore? Or do we look at something else? Do we look at different weapon type, which can't be so easily counted? Or it's a really difficult one. And, and it's the same with the front end. We know that we can put forks on it. You know, we, we're engineers. We, we know how to how to do that. But then it's it's we know that we'll have to drive it in a different way. Then we'll have to start slowing down and sitting on the spot. And, and you go, that's not how we 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 want to have fun doing this. We don't want to be um, we, we want to put on a performance, and we want people to want to watch Quantum and enjoy watching Quantum, and it not be. Uh, Oh, they're, they're doing that because that's the most competitive way. Of, you know, the way to win a battle is to sit on the spot and let the opponent come to you. Well, we're going to get to a point where everybody's doing that, and and it's yeah, it's 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 a difficult one, really. Yeah, but I, I think for the time being, though, I don't I don't think we're at that stage with quantum where it's not relevant or it's not um, it can't do better. We obviously we, we went out far earlier in the competition than we'd hoped. Um, we were pleased with our progress in there, but quantum isn't the absolute optimum that a hydraulic crusher can be yet. There's still improvements that can be made. One of those is on the speed of the of the crusher, particularly on retracting the, the crusher back. Um, robots are getting so quick now. You see like Claw Viper and Hypershock and things flying around the arena that when we first designed quantum, the hydraulic system was a good speed and now the robots are speeding up. We need to make sure we can clamp them a bit quicker. So that's one of the key things we'll be looking at. Um, yeah, there's just lots of incremental improvements we can make to to keep pushing pushing the competitiveness of, of Quantum. I, I don't think we're done with crushes yet, uh, that's for sure. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, so Brandon's next question is, um, do you think that quantum success will inspire more crushers? I hope so. Um, it's it's a shame. I was really hoping that Kraken could have stayed as a crusher because I think it it did prove that their design was was good. It, it held up really well against certain spinners being able to go go head on with things. Um, and I think there were only a few minor improvements and changes they needed to make to to make Kraken really quite competitive. And if you had two competitive crushers in the game, I think that would open a lot more people's eyes to it. Um, and I think a lot of people Hydra though, where you go to build a build a good flipper, you say, "Oh, Hydra's now makes flippers competitive." But you go, "Well, to go to Hydra's level, you need to put in so much more work." That if that when it gets to that point, people will put that amount of work into individual spinner robots, and then just get wiped out again. So it's I don't know, maybe the sport will evolve and that won't be the case, but it's so difficult to, to do what Hydra have done and what Beta's doing and what Shatter does that it, it's not easy to just go, oh, well, you know, they're competitive now, we'll build one of those. No, especially when, if you do build them and you've, you've got the, the capability and the time and the funding behind you to do it properly, <laughs> The downside to it is, is that for a crusher to win, it's everything needs to go right. Um, it's 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 not like you can just run up and get a, a lucky hit on like a spinner and cause a huge amount of damage. You need a perfect bite, and 
is very hard to do. Um, and, and that's the problem. And you need or multiple good bites to to be able to, to win a fight. And so it, it's... I, I don't like to keep saying everything sort of against you with a crusher, but it, it sort of is when it, it's it's far more easy to counter a crusher. Anyone can put a... Hard, if they've got the weight, they can put a half-inch thick hardox plate on top and it you know we can't get through it. Fortunately, it's powerful enough that hopefully something else bends or we can bend drive shafts and, and other bits to help. But that sort of instant big damage is is potentially quite easy to to, to stop. Um, so, yeah, there's... I think it's the same reason why there's only Shatter and Beta as hammers, though. Like, they're so easy to counter, relatively speaking. There's nothing that you can put on a spinner against... The sp- you can't go, on. Oh, I'm fighting huge or I'm fighting endgame, so we're just going to put this on and then that... Well, that makes that easy. But... It's not easy against beta and shatter and overhead weapons like that, but it's a lot easier to do it. There's things that you can put on your robots with like things that are around you that you can just pick up and go, okay, I just saw that piece of polycarbonate up and I'll put it on some vibration mounts and you've got a long way to stopping their weapon being effective. This actually leads really nicely into Brandon's next question, um, which is, do you think building crushers are worthwhile compared to the ease of spinners? It depends what you're going for. It is, like I said before, everybody at BattleBots goes for a different reason. Some people go to purely to try and win. And others, like as we try and push the limits of, in terms, in sort of, in a different direction. Um, and, and that's what we enjoy. So for us, it's worth going this route. For others, absolutely isn't. It's, if you're trying to purely just win the competition, it absolutely isn't the best type of machine to build. Um, it's not the best one to do if you're trying to do it in any sort of sensible cost um, or, or even reliability or anything. It's, 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 as a competition machine, it goes against everything really. To which is why when we first showed Quantum Inspector, everyone was saying, "Oh, looks lovely, but it's a shame it won't do very well." And it's yeah, and it's true. It's it's very difficult to do to do well. Um, so some of it might has been luck. Some of it's been the design and, and build of the machine as to how we've we've done so well. But ultimately, it is a it is a hard slog to to get one of these machines right at the top. And, and we've not necessarily done that to its full capability yet, but yeah, it depends what you want to do. If, if you're in there to try and sort of do the best job you can and, and do something different, then it's great. If you're trying to purely win the competition, a vertical spinner is the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, you know, this, this also is a, a good question um, leading out of that. Um, do you have any ideas for other sister machines you would like to try alongside Quantum? Anything other than a crusher that you've been wanting to, you know, kind of noodle around with? We've got a few concepts. Some of them are probably a bit too out there. <laughs> um, but we'd love to build a walker, um, but it, it requires a lot of time to do that. Um, as we say, we, we, we want to do it to the best of our ability and, and do it some justice. Um, you want people to be excited by what you're building, and so to do a to do a walker in that would require a lot 
a lot longer time scales. And I don't know whether that's feasible or not with backbots unless they got like a multi-year deal and you could say, right, this year we'll run quantum, next year we'll run the sister robots, whatever that is. And I would love to build, there's a couple of robots I'd like to build. One, a robot that swallows other robots. So you could get like a 100 ton hydraulic jaw on there and you just grab them, pick them up and just swallow the robot and try and crumple the, <laughs> the whole thing down. Um, but then some weird out there stuff. I'd like to do um, like a wall running robot. So it uses the arena walls rather than the arena floor to drive around. James seems to think that that won't get banned. against <laughs> <laughs> the rules. So there's a few things like that where you go, this, if this was motorsport, we would be turning up with this. And there's nothing that they could do because it's perfectly safe and it's within the rules. And there's no way anybody can beat this thing. But yeah, I quite like the idea that of building something where people can't look at your robot before and build an attachment or something to or armor up in any way against you because they have no idea what your robot's going to be. And I've got a few ideas on how we can do that. So you turn up with almost like an armadillo type shell thing or the old Batmobile with all the armor panels that sort of clunk over it. And only in the last second when the green light comes on, all that armor sort of all retracts and clunks back and you, you reveal effectively the, the weapon that, you, that you're using. And that, I think, would go a, a long way in people not sort of armoring up in a certain way against you. They've got no idea whether to use the long forks, short forks, good top armor or side armor which wedge to use um if you can make a robot where they have they can see it up close they can have a look around and they have no idea what they're in for that's that's what i'd really like to do i'm uh i'm really hoping that you know battlebots finds a way to kind of break out of this six week notice cycle um because i would love 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 to see what you would come up with in addition to quantum, you know, if you had that, you know, time and the guarantees of a season and whatnot, because the idea of a walker from your team, um, I'm just, I, man, it's so, I would be so amazing. I think it would be an either or. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. That makes sense. Um, all right, so uh, Brandon has two more questions here. What were some lessons you've learned, not just from BattleBots, but also other international events that you've carried with you? I think a, a critical learning early on was drives more important than anything. Um, and attention to detail. So we, we did really well in King of Bots because they had a super flat floor and we were the first people to surface grind the front ends. So we knew that with our attention to detail, nobody could compete with that. Like they'd come and they'd angle around the forks and have all these forks and attachments, but nobody got under the spectre because it was super precision and we spent a lot of time fettling before each battle to get it as perfect as possible. Um, a slightly different in the BattleBots arena because by the time Ripperoni's been around and Tombstone and dug all the floor but <laughs> Um, that precision front end becomes imprecise, um, and that's where forks are taking over. Um, so, but it's such a massive learning curve, battle boxes and fighting robots, that 
you learn so much. Every defeat is a massive learning opportunity. Um, I don't think we've ever lost a fight and then not learned something pretty important from that. Other than the tombstone fight, which we still don't know why we ended up upside down. But no, it's... Oh, no, no, you can go for it. Oh, I, I was just going to say that the big thing really for us is um, is just to keep things changing. Um, I think if you go back series after series with the same type of machine um, without subtle changes... Um, that everyone else is progressing so quickly that you just don't stand a chance. You've got to make those changes and improvements. Everyone's seen your machine, they're seeing what you can do. And if you go back with the same, they've already come up with ideas to counter it. Yeah. Um, so Brandon's last question is, uh, will there be another Robo Challenge event held in the UK? Now, Brandon competes at like every East Coast and beyond competition here in america so i have a feeling he maybe wants an excuse to go over to the uk i don't know the plan is certainly to to run some more we with covid and things the the key events we used to do um aren't happening anymore but we are we, we've we've we're just sort of clearing out um a big factory that uh, that our family's owned um and clearing some space so we're looking at hopefully permanently set or semi-permanently setting up the the arena there as well to start holding some events and things first but once once that's all done we're going to start looking at trying to put on um a big championship once a year again as and where we can we've we've got a almost brand new arena sat there not doing anything at the moment so it would be a shame not to use it nice nice um, all right. So given everything we've discussed so far about crushers at the heavyweight level, uh, Matt Lantry, uh, builder of Fallout and Half-Life, has a follow-up question. Uh, first, he says, just wanted to say, I love Quantum. It is such a sick bot. Uh, and then his question is, do you have any advice or mechanism ideas for someone who's trying to make a three-pound crushing beetle or any mechanisms that may be helpful with that? Yeah, linear actuators are really handy. Um, we, when we first made uh, Venom, um, that was a custom-made one, and when we say custom-made, that was really, um, yeah, quite grotesquely made back in the old days. So we, we used a drill motor and attached a, a lead screw to it, and Grant had a similar thing for his lifter robot, um, and they were really effective. Um, and definitely you can be scaled down to the three pound range, especially with the plastic bushings and plastic nuts. You can apply quite, quite a bit of force through those now. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the key thing is those sort of the, the beetle weight of three pound um, robots. There's, it, it is quite tricky as you are against a very tight uh, tight weight limits so hydraulics and things like that so it, it, it's all absolutely doable but it's more difficult but I do think you could probably build uh, a hydraulic system without valves sort of a, a forward and reverse pump system that you could actually get enough pressure in to do some serious damage on the on that sort of weight class so I, I'd, I'd again be looking at hydraulics I think if I built one 
Cool. Yeah, Matt is always competing. He is always at, um, you know, uh, NHRL. And uh, I hope that, uh, you know, he's able to take that advice and build a, a crusher because that would be really cool and definitely not something we see uh, very often at NHRL. Um, so, yeah. Kyle Cuffrey has also a few great questions. Um, first, he starts by saying, you seem to have completely shattered the crushers can't compete narrative. So um, he's really excited about that. Um, and I know you, you've kind of touched on this, um, but what have you done in quantum to achieve the level of damage and competitiveness that you have? You know, one thing I would say that I'm, I am surprised with is that the key things that seem to have shown a big performance boost this year are actually probably the only things we've not made a big change to. Um, so the speed and the power of the crusher is, is the same as 2019 and the speed and the power of the drive system hasn't changed. Um, we've made lots of changes around the machine to increase weight, improve reliability, um, get better self-writing and, and all sorts of bits like that. But the key sort of performance parts are very much the same and in, in 2019 we'd we'd sort of we've been doing a, a lot of fighting over in china um and at king of Bot, spectre just drove really well and it felt really connected to you and sort of performed exactly as we wanted we went to BattleBots in 2019 and it just didn't feel the same so it felt a bit disconnected on the drive we didn't seem to have the grip and the the pushing and slamming power that we had this time around and at, and at King of Bots. Um, and to be honest, I couldn't tell you why. The It may be that the floor was so uneven back then. It was very, very bad at the time. Um, it's, it's a significant improvement now with the thicker floor. But th this time, it sort of seemed to just work well. Um, and I, I, I couldn't pinpoint as to why. It felt like... It felt like Spectre did over at King of Bots, and I think you're right. I think that's down to the floors. I watched some of the fights back from 2019, and most of the time, one wheel's off the floor, and that, that's obviously going to make it a big difference to the way the machine moves around. Um, this season, it was much better, but it did get slightly worse as, as the season went on, as the, as the arena gets more battered. There's, there's definitely a change in there, and losing grip, and and sliding and things like that as as wheels uh, are lifted off the floor. Um, so, you know, I, I think our robot is very... One thing that's learned from Quantum and Spectre is that they're, that they're very much dialed in for a flat floor. When, when there's a flat floor and they work really well when, when they're on lumpy floors, I think it's just the design of our chassis. It's got a bit of flex to it, but... Um, I think maybe we need a bit more compliance in the tyres to try and keep that the same and maintain like a, um, uh, I forgot the word for it now, but try and keep the, the drive stable throughout competition as the arena revolves. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of that is that we don't do a lot of sort of just straight driving. You'll very rarely see quantum driving in a straight line. Uh, we're always trying to sort of stay relatively close and out driving our opponents. And so the, the the grip and everything on the floor is quite critical for us. A lot of these much higher speed robots will dart to one side of the arena, turn and point at the opponent and dart across at full speed again. Um, but that, that doesn't work for our weapon. So um, yeah, it's, the, the floor has quite a big effect on on the drive. But for, for some reason, and like I say, I, 
all I can put it down to is the floor um, being being flatter this time round. That it it just felt dialed in this time round, and so driving seemed a lot more controllable. Yeah, I mean, you almost I almost forgot how big a point of contention the floor was like not that long ago, just a couple of years ago, and how how much it it really messed with so many bots and now i feel like i'm almost taking it for granted that it's slightly better um but that's an interesting point that as the season goes on you know like even just some of that traction um is is being lost because of uh i would imagine just general wear and tear on the floor not even necessarily just you know uh, giant gashes in it or or whatnot we were really disappointed when COVID came around and cancelled this because th- that for me was when I thought we would see the big step in performance with no change to the robots because we'd practiced driving at King of Bots. We'd, we were experienced at driving on a flat, solid floor and BattleBots was producing us at the flat, solid floor. So 2020 was the opportunity for us to really steal a march on the opponents. We, we were the only people with surface ground front ends. We were we were used to fighting in that environment. And so that 2020 season was the opportunity for us to steal a march on everybody. But then COVID happened and then we came back this year and everybody's got precision front ends. You're like, oh, that was a missed opportunity. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> So now we need we need to think of it's it's not about how flat and sharp your front end is anymore. It's about how do you keep them stable, how do you keep them on the floor, and ideally you do that by not moving your robots. And so we we need to think of a counter to that because we don't want to drive the robot in that way because it is you know we need to enjoy it as much as anything. Um, yeah, so. Well, that's ultimately, I think, why we why we lost the robot fight um, is that we were trying to sort of get them moving around. And I'm not saying they did anything wrong or bad by sort of staying still or relatively still on the spot and sort of just pointing at us, knowing that we couldn't get under them. It's it's you play to the the strength of the rules, but for us, that's not what we like to do. And so, after a number of times trying to circle them and trying to get them moving around the arena. And it didn't. We were sort of getting, I particularly was getting a bit frustrated and in the end just went head on and almost sort of sacrificed ourselves to some degree. But that wasn't the best thing to do in the days of the moment. But um, but yeah, it's it, sitting on the spot for us isn't isn't fighting. It's yeah, it's 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 not what we want to do. And uh, that's sort it's, of, it's the way to win, but. It's, it's kind of counter to every other sport where you see, like, in, in the highest sports of motorsports, in combat sports, you see the best drivers, the best controllers in the world with the best machinery in the finals. Whereas that, that's not necessarily the case at BattleBots because of this unique thing of you have the advantage if you can if you're lower than the opponent, and that doesn't matter if you're a spinner, or a crusher, or a flipper. Um, th- there's a weird quirk about this sport where, for some reason, the ground game is more important than anything else. And so now you see the point where, if you're lower, you get to sit on the spot. You have this big upper hand, and it doesn't matter if you built a good robot or a bad one, or if you're a good driver or not. 
you get that free pass almost. And the other robot has to do all the work and is driving on its limits to try and find an opening. But you know that within a three-minute battle, they're going to make a mistake. And it's inevitable, really. You, what, I think it's when you watch two spinners fighting, you can see the one that can sit on the spot and the one that has to do the driving. It's it's a matter of time before the one that does the driving really loses. It, it's quite odd. It's quite strange for that to not be the case. Um, I don't know what can be done about it. Like, it, And it's not a weapon thing. It's not saying verts shouldn't be low to the ground because I think if... If crushers could be low to the ground and verts couldn't, we'd, we'd win BattleBots fairly easily um, because the ground game is so important. So I don't know what the solution is, but I'd really, personally, I'd love to see like a mix-up of the rules and just go, how do we get people driving on their absolute limits? So you watch the final and you, watch, you feel like you're watching the best drivers in the world with the best robots in the world, and that's why they're in the final. And you're going to see them absolutely on their limits, trying to get every ounce of performance out of the robots. That's personally what I'd like to see. Yeah. And, you know, you look at it, the round of 32 this year, there were a handful of, you know, non-vertical spinners that, you know, made made it to the round of 32. But now that we're in the round of 16, um, I can't quite remember off the top of my head. I know it's Hydra. Um, and are there others left that are not... Oh, I no. Uh, yeah. Blood sports out. Is Claw Viper still in? No. No Claw Viper's out. So yeah, I mean, you really see, the- you know, as as the competition goes on, like there is, there is just more and more opportunity, I guess, for these, um, you know, spinners and vertical spinners to kind of uh, show. And you look at Hydra and say, well, what makes it competitive? And it's not the powerful flipper. Yeah, the, the powerful flipper's good. But the thing that makes it competitive is it, it's very low. They know it's very low. And they can control the fights because of that. You, know, you stick any weapon on Hydra, you can put a crusher on there, a hammer or a spinner, and they will always be competitive because of that front end. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of conundrum to work through, and I don't know what the answer is, but it would be interesting to see, you know, the rule set kind of tweaked a little bit to try and promote maybe a little bit more diversity of uh, of weapon. Um, I think it's as much for me of of seeing the robots on their limits. That's what I'd like to see because then then it's as a spectator, it's a TV show ultimately, and you want to see people drive into their limits to beat the opponent. So if, if there was a way of making it so both robots had to try and outmaneuver the opponent, so if you can imagine if all robots had like a step on the front of them so nobody could get underneath anybody from the front, they'd have to go around the side to be effective. And so you, you suddenly get this driving war then of outmaneuvering and trying to gain an advantage over the opponent. I don't know. There must be some... It must be some way of doing it. Yeah, I'd I'd like to see it. Um, and I I hope, I w- I would yeah like to see it kind of evolve in that way. I don't I don't know that they ever will because I think they you know like the, fa they favor production favors maybe the big hits over like the you know driving skill. Although that's what I really love to see. 
Um, but you know, it's a wide audience out there. I get the big hits because you know, that's that's what all the highlight reels are. You know, that's what gets viewers watching it. But what keeps viewers watching it is not knowing the outcome of battles. And I think, unfortunately, the sport can get a little bit predictable when you can see the design of the robot and you can see how they're driving and you can kind of guess what the content's going to be. And, and it's unlikely to be different from what you're thinking if, if you've watched it a few times. So I think it, it's just about trying to get a TV content that is compelling to watch um, and is exciting and not predictable. I think that's, yeah. that's the key. I agree. The key um, I guess, you know, you, you, you alluded to this earlier, but Ian Miller, a builder of Quicksand 2, asks point blank, are you planning to play the wedge or fork game more aggressively next season? No, but we we, we desperately don't want to. Um, but we need to come up with something. Um, we can't take it back as it is, but we, we don't want to be sitting on the spot. The last thing we want is Quantum being the lowest robot there and sitting in the middle of the arena waiting for its opponent to come up to it. That, that's just not what Quantum yeah. was supposed to be. Quantum's a... A predator. It's supposed to go after the opponent, and when it stops doing that, it stops being quantum for me, and it becomes a different ball game. Then, as Grant said, we, we want we want to think of something else. I'm not sure there there is something else, but yeah. Um, his his other question is: Have you or will you make any changes to prevent your teeth from getting stuck in AR five hundred? Well, we, we've only ever got stuck once, which is in Blacksmith um, with the AR500. Uh, we've, I mean, I wouldn't like to think how many holes we've put in different machines so far and, and not got stuck. So we've tried a few things with tapered teeth, polishing them and all sorts of things. And unfortunately, if you're using two similar metals to puncture through each other, they're going to get stuck. And people have mentioned quite a few times we should be disqualified for that or, or whatever else, but... If you look at it, saw blades, for example, has been stuck in other AR500 bodywork more than we have. Um, they've gone down and discs been punctured in and they've got stuck. And there aren't calls for that to be disqualified on, on similar bands. And so, unfortunately, if, you, if, if your weapon is made of the same material that, that you're trying to puncture through, there's a very good chance you're going to get stuck at some point. Um, so, I mean... If, if people don't want to get stuck on us, they need to choose a different material. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. It's a difficult one. So it's, we, we have tried lots of different things and, and it requires more power than the crusher has to get it back out. So that's, the, that's the weird thing about it. You can't have like a, a device or a hydraulic thing that like pushes them up. Because you would need a cylinder the size of the main jaw attached to the teeth to, to be able to do that. And that Still wouldn't be enough. Um, it's a really difficult thing to solve. Yeah, and I think it is shown in the the I think Hypershock. Sorry, um, Sawblade's got stuck into Hypershock, and there's been a, a couple of others that have been stuck for a period and eventually wheeled their way out. Um, but yeah, it's it's not limited to to the crushing teeth. It does happen more with spinners. Um, 
But yeah, I think because ours is sort of a, a deliberate piercing, it's sort of seen as a more intentional thing. But uh, you know, fortunately for us, it's only happened that that one time against Blacksmith, and, and fingers crossed it doesn't happen again because it, it doesn't make an interesting TV show doing that. Um, and that that's not how we'd like to win. We'd rather go through someone's batteries than than win by being being stuck. Yeah, yeah. And the fact, like you said, that it's only really happened once, it doesn't seem like it's a an ongoing problem. And yeah, I mean, we saw it with Huge this season, right? With Blip, um, if I'm recalling. I think it's definitely an ongoing problem. It's, it's just a combat robot sports problem in that these materials are really effective armor, but they're also really good effective materials for making teeth and weapon blades and all sorts of stuff. And when the when you're trying to put a hole in them, which is the whole purpose of the sport, when you do that, they can get stuck. And, and it's it's like a fundamental, really. But um, yeah. thankfully, it doesn't happen all that often. All right, cool. So we um we have some Robot Wars-related questions um, from Ryder Lee Angle over on the NHRL Discord. Um, and so his first question is, you guys were very hands-on with the reboot of Robot Wars. How hard was it to try to be faithful to the original while still being modern uh, with where the sport was? And he said, uh, both in terms of the format and in the terms of the new builds of the house bots. I think it, it, it was a real honor being asked to be part of Robot Wars. It, it was like a, a dream job for us. And it's something that um, I'm really proud of. Um, we, we did, when we did the house robots, we, we were really conscious of of trying to make them not not to try and reinvent them but to try and reveal them a little more so Sakilalat's revealing a bit more of his head to show who Sakilalat was as a character rather than try and reinvent him as something else so it was trying to get that blend of of physically having house robots that can take on modern day fighting robots bearing in mind that robot wars was happening, um, Robot Wars was commissioned before BattleBots had happened. So although BattleBots was the first one out, you know, Robot Wars was preparing at that point. So there'd been no, there was no bar set for what teams were capable of doing. And so it, it was a really difficult and interesting challenge to make the house robots physically capable within the modern era, whilst being true to what they were and who they were. And then when you add in that, we had, I found out last year that we had the same budget to build the new house robots as the original BBC team had to build the the original house robots. Um, oh, wow. So our, our budget was incredibly tight. The time was like three months from design concepts to creating four house robots as well as helping design the arena and make sure that was safe and not just finger in the air is it safe but actually validating the design with prototypes and testing and and that that was the first time any arena had actually been tested to go can it actually contain fighting robots you know the, the robot wars arena was the first time that had properly been done except for like our featherweight arena that we did our own testing on. And then there's the buildings and 
Yeah, yeah the, the arena is probably one of the key things I think that I'm sort of most proud of. Um, and I think we, obviously, the, the, some people like arena hazards, some don't, some like house robots, some don't. But the format of Robot Wars is that they have the house robots and they have the arena hazards. Um, it is different to BattleBots. But the changes that we made to the design of that arena with the sloped sides, um, having the sort of the exclusion zones in certain areas, but we had the four flip out zones so that flippers um, were still relevant because we, we, we could see sort of this vert meta sort of coming very early on and we didn't want robot wars to head too far down in that direction. And at the time, flippers were the dominant force in robot wars. So we wanted something that made it difficult for a flipper to, to get robots out of the arena. So we made the raised walls. But if you had either something like Hydra, you could flip them over those sort of eight foot tall walls, or there were four flip out zones. So if you had great control, you could do it as well. But that meant that it was, was certainly more difficult than it used to be for a flipper to win. But also it meant that they still had an opportunity where it wasn't like the battle box where a vertical spinner can hit you and you just keep getting bounced back in. Or if you're a flipper, you can't flip them out anyway. You've got to last three minutes. So I, I think we got the balance of that actually really quite good for what the robots were at the time. Um, so yeah, that that was a that was a really good sort of thing for me. I think. All right. So um, he writer goes on to say, "Fair warning: this next one might be a bit spicy, um, but there were plenty of fights in Robot Wars where the house bots were super aggressive. When one bot was even somewhat near its territory." But the other bot in the fight gets right up next to a house bot, often the same one that was just being aggressive, which just happens to quote unquote malfunction and doesn't fight back. How much of that was favoritism of who uh, the show wanted to win versus actual tech issues? So the first thing I'll say about Robot Wars, so we've been to BattleBots, Robot Wars and King of Bots. Robot Wars is the closest to being a real sport than any of them. Yes, it's a TV show, but because it was on the BBC, there were a lot of rules put in place. So nobody from production was allowed to go and speak to the judges, not the executive producer, not anybody. That They couldn't be seen to be tampered with at all. It was the first time in, in Robot Wars' history that there were rules put in place, like written rules for house robots and how they would function and how they would, wouldn't function. And all that was for BBC Fair Play to go. If people are if people are using their money and their time to design and build robots to come to a competition, it can't be set up. It has to be legitimate. The only thing where production could really spice it up was in the selection of the first round fights. After that, they couldn't. They weren't allowed to fiddle with it. They weren't allowed to come up with storylines that would say, oh, like we want Razor to go through, so let's let's do this to favour them. You know, we weren't allowed to talk to the judges, nothing, even the, the arena affects people. Um, they were they had very specific rules on when they could use the arena effects and it was all because of this BBC fair play. So as a sporting perspective goes, BBC Robot Wars was I would say the closest thing to a sport that there that there is in in fighting robots. 
Yeah, and I think, well, I certainly got in trouble um, once. I can't remember which fight it was, but there was there was one where the one of the robot. I think both robots had looked like they'd stopped at the same time, but one had one stopped, but they were still working. And because I think production at the time had told them all transmitters down, they weren't in a position where they could tell the, or show off how well their robot was still working. So I'd actually gone up to, started walking up the platform to the judges to sort of just let them know that they, they can go and either get them to do a, a function test or to explain that actually that, that robot was working. And I got in quite a lot of trouble for that because there was someone other than the three judges there that had gone up and it could infer some kind of uh, manipulation or anything like that. So from a fairness point of view, it was good. And, and from our point of view, James and I were driving the house robots. Um, we've got lots of friends there at Robot Wars and it we just wanted to smash them all <laughs> for, for our thing. The fun on the house robots was was trying to actually just get as many hits in as we could. Um, but the problem is when you're driving a circular lot that weighs three quarters of a ton, those things don't move like they do with... Um, Doesn't drive like quantum. <laughs> yeah, they don't drive like quantum at all. <laughs> so so <laughs> a lot of the times it can be you sort of, you're actually watching something else going on in the arena because we were also dealing a lot with the health and safety side of things, looking for anything that might be happening and that shouldn't be in the arena as well. And it may be we missed a couple of things here and there, good attacks that we could have had. Um, it may be others we were just happened to be lined up well at the time and it was an easier an easier attack. Um, but there's, I can categorically say there's absolutely never any favouritism as such. Um, I think you'll you probably see Cobalt. Um, Dave Moles was uh, he's one of my best friends and uh, and he was the best man at my wedding during the sort of around the Robot Wars period and um, we gave him a good good slaughtering at one point. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's so interesting to hear the differences between, um, you know, competition show rules, um, in the U S versus the UK. Like if I recall correctly, um, UK competition shows, like you can't win a monetary prize at the end, um, the way that like you can in the U S so it, and on top of that, like their commitment to making sure things are fair and, and, you know, not just done for the sake of like a good storyline or something it's it's interesting to to you know learn about the the differences yeah i think the bbc being um being like a, a public owned um entity um meant that everything has to be above board because it can all it, it wasn't like a, it's not a corporate channel where they can put advertising on and they've got lots of budget so they can't they can't give teams lots of money but what they can do is make it fair um, and if you're one of the things was if we're telling people that this is a competition or if we're putting a TV show together that says that this is a competition, then it has to be that it can't it can't be this is a championship, but in the background we're gonna we're gonna put them against each other and then we're gonna do this and oh we're gonna change the judging roles and we're gonna have a quick chat with the judges because actually we really like that robot and it'd be a good story if they went through over them and you know we'll create some drama from that or you know we'll get some funny decisions and there are quite a few on judges decisions that we'd all be baffled by but they were the judges decisions you know, we, uh, we couldn't we couldn't even talk to them about it to get them to justify it or 
you know, and they have their own monitors so they can watch the watch the battles back. And yeah, you know, it, it was really well done, and it was nice to do that because it made it a really clear line whether it came across to the teams or whether it came across to the audience. But it made it really clear for us that this is a legitimate competition and there can't be any meddling with it. So we, we couldn't just go off and go, oh, this would be good fun if we go and grab them and kill a lot and toast them. If, if they didn't go over the line, we weren't allowed to touch them. Yeah, and I think it it absolutely did adversely affect um, some of the fights when in the older series you could just go out if the fight wasn't that exciting, spice it all up with the house robots and smash them. Um, but we, we just couldn't do that. But where the TV show side of things comes in to, to spice that up is during the applications and during those first round matchups where the, the heats were decided based on what they think would make the best TV show and things like that, um, obviously. But as soon as that first round was set, the show went in the direction that, it, that the teams took it. So Ryder has one more question uh, about King of Bots. Um, so he says, uh, King of Bots experimented with uh, 2v2 fights. And one fight that really stood out to me uh, in that just for the synergy of how the two winning bots work together was Spectre and Cat King versus Orby Blade and Rhino. How do you feel about that kind of match? And if you could do that type of fight again, would you want a team with Mad Catter or would you want to have another partner uh, to fight with? I think that there's, there's a lot to be said about Gigabots. So, from, from, so to give a bit of context before context, we were part of a team and the team says, okay, we're, there's a 2v2 battle and then we're going to put in these two robots to compete. Being a crusher, the last place you want to be is in a multi-robot battle because you're really vulnerable to the other robots. And we had a bit of a falling out, with, like because Grant's in with the with the production because the the team captains were all isolated for that. So the team captains unfortunately couldn't work on the robots, but then the team members didn't have a clue what was going on. And so then when we found out that we're in a two v two battle, you know. What's going on? Like the one thing that we said, we've got a whole team of robots. The one battle that we said not to put us in for, we seem to be in. Um, and in, but you know, the, the battle went really well. We, we were lucky with Cat King. They um, they came and rescued us a bit because uh, we hit the we hit a dink in the floor. I think it was a bolt sticking up in the floor, and it bent. Bent the front end slightly, and then Ryan managed to take the front end out, and then you know you, you're really in trouble at that stage. But um, Cat King managed to help pin them up the wall, and from there we were able to bite onto them, and um, yeah, we, we we won the we won the battle then. But um, yeah, we really like Martin and that those guys are, are really awesome people. Um, they, they build savage robots, and uh, I, I know King of Bots. His robot never really quite works the way he wanted it to, but um, we, we saw it at BattleBots this time, and you go, geez, they've, they've really made a few steps. And um, yeah, really nice guy. Yeah, and the, the one thing is that with King of Bots, because we're in that team, we had uh, Megabyte in there and, and a few others as well, is that we're in a room with those for nearly three weeks. So we're always talking about the strengths of the robots, how, you, how we. You're working together as a team on your tactics of how one robot 
can fight. So if, if Megabyte had a fight as a team, we would all group together and say, well, let's go with this strategy. Let's let's work like this together. And so you've it's not like being a battle bots and then you just select a random team to come and join as your tag team partner. You've started to learn each other's robots inside out. And it's I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I will say that the most fun I've had fighting robots is King of Bots because it was just so different and you didn't know you didn't know what you were doing from one minute to the next. <laughs> but you it was the, the team games I really enjoyed. There was a lot of big elements that we've not had in fighting robots before. Um and yeah, I, I really liked that. Um, so I I'd, I'd love to see something similar in the future with Robot Wars or BattleBots going down that sort of route. Um, I know it's not a lot of people's preference, but it's the most fun I've had fighting robots. I mean, they, they come up with ridiculous concepts, like on the day. So we were told that, okay, the next fight, you're going to put your robot in and you're going to keep going until it dies. And like, well, what happens at the end of the battle? Or we'll just put another opponent in. Anyway, this ridiculous that we built Spectre to last for three minutes tops. And it was just lucky that we were able to take out half the weapon packs. So the weapon was on half power and put twice as many drive packs in, just put anything that we had in there just to try and get a bit more out of it. So when we came to the final of King of Bots 2 and and they we were we had to, to get through to the final of that, we had to beat like five robots, I think it was. And she's like, this is impossible. But as we gradually got through them, like we'd beat a robot and then and then a robot wouldn't work properly, so they'd pull out. And then we beat another one and then there was something else happened. And then we, we lost to Vulcan and we managed to get through to the, their final robot. And you go, that was such an on-the-edge-of-our-seat um, thing. I think that's probably my... Even though we lost in the final... Um, I think that's probably my favourite thing that we've been part of because uh, the thrill of of us being like four robots down compared to the opponents and then we managed to bring it back to the grand final was just, yeah, it's just unbelievable really. I always look back at that fondly and, and it's nice to be able to share that because obviously I'm with my brother, I'm with my dad, we've got a good friend Henry with us. So it's nice to be able to be there with those people and, and share those ridiculous moments. <laughs> I love hearing that. And I, I just love hearing the differences between, uh, you know, how the different, uh, not just countries, but, you know, productions kind of handle uh, the competition. So that's, that's really cool. Um, they didn't handle the competition. You, you get there in the morning and go, okay, what's on today then? Oh, we'll tell you in 10 minutes. And then you got to the end of like a three-week filming and there was a day left. And you're like, well, all the robots are still in the competition, so how are we going to get a winner by tomorrow? And then there's this crazy format comes out where all of a sudden all the robots go home because they got colour blue on them or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that one... Uh... I've heard some crazy stories and uh, that doesn't but, surprise me. I will me. say for, for King of Bots in 2019, a lot of the BattleBots teams were funded by Chinese money. Like you look yeah. at the high-end BattleBots teams and they all were paid for by these Chinese shows. And I think that was the start of the big spending um, movement. There's no way we could have developed Quantum without the funding from King of Bots. And we 
to be fair, we've been very fortunate that we did very well and the prize money was very good there as well. Um, and that that's helped to the massively to the development of the machines. But we couldn't justify doing what we did with Quantum um, completely off our own back from the get-go without without the funding and the, and the prize money from, from King of Bots. It makes you think, it makes you think, you know, what could happen if there were, uh, if there's just more money in it, either from discovery or whoever to kind of help fund these bots. Um, but you know, you know, <laughs> I guess I won't go further than that, but, um, so Ryan Hunter, who runs Pit Crew at NHRL, has returned yet again with another chat GPT generated question. So he's done this now for a few weeks. And, uh, you know, surprisingly, chat GPT kind of comes up with some thought provoking, thought provoking questions, which is a little terrifying. But here we go. Uh, how do you balance the need for precision and control with the need for speed and aggression during a BattleBots match? And how does that impact your decision-making as builders? I think if you look at all of Quantum's fights, it mimics a wild predator in that you would never see a lion or a hyena just tearing around and just trying to bite things because it, it wouldn't work. And it's kind of the same with Quantum in that you see it almost at the beginning of the fight, you see it stalking and trying to find a opening but as soon as is that opening, it's all over it like a wild dog then. Um, and I think balancing, you need that precision. You need to know when to go and when to hold back. And, and you need to see those openings before the opponent sees them. And you need to understand how the opponent's driving, how they're moving. And that gives you that information to, to go for it. The difference between a robot and a, and a predator in the wild is that it takes some time for the robot to do what you're requesting it to do. So it takes quite a long time to, to, to gel with the robot enough to be able to go on the attack quickly and pounce on the opponent and find those openings. Um, so it's, it's very much a, a case of stalking and trying to get that opening and once once the opening's there you go for it once you go for it you, you don't hold back until they're dead so this is actually um a, a good follow-up question but this time from a human and the human is jesse mollen um and they want to know hydraulic crushers have always had a balance between crushing speed and crushing power how have you struck such a fast and powerful crusher and accomplished both? So th this is where we were talking about this two-stage sort of valving system that we're using. Um, and like James said, we'll do a video on that to explain exactly how that works fairly shortly to explain it. But the I think without that system in, having the 21 kilowatts motor on there, I think it takes about six seconds, is it, to close if we don't have that high-speed yeah. sort of switch over. Um, so if, if someone made a standard hydraulic crusher with the same weapon, uh, sorry, with the same motor and pump that we're using, it would take them about six seconds to close, which is obviously far too slow, but they have access to the full power, crushing power at any time. So we've, we've had to sacrifice crushing power to get the high speed in the first section. And then, as we said before, then we switch over to a different valving system 
um, to then go to the slow speed, which is why it, it'll sort of fairly rapidly go down on top of someone. And then it looks like it's, the robot's loading up and slowly piercing through. But it's not that it's slowing down because it's loading up. It's slowing down because it's switched to a different valve system um, that's inherently slower. But we, we actually have about 10%, I think about 20% more power than we need. Um, so we, we can run full, full speed and full pressure at the same time. So when I say full speed, I mean full pump speed without the second sort of staging in the valve. So we, we didn't want the jaw to slow down when it hits an opponent effectively, if that makes sense. So once it's at full speed, it will... Once it's at full pressure, it will carry on at full speed. It won't. It won't slow down the jaw. And I think that's having that headroom in the motor, having such a massive weapon motor, means that we can do that without worrying about burning it out, without getting too hot, or worrying about how hard we bite things. We we just go for it. Nice. All right. So we have a couple questions left here. Um, and the one of them is from BW Nance from the NHRL Discord. And they want to know the, the fights that you did the best in as far as damage seem to be those where you ran the single tooth. What were the reasons you didn't go single tooth all the time? The single tooth we use for people who've got thicker armor. Um, obviously, if you've got two teeth, you've got the same force but spread between two teeth rather than one so um, anyone we think we we get struggle getting through will go with the single teeth on um, other than black dragon we didn't think we'd get through them at all so we went with the two teeth on that to try and get the belts and the, and the, the tires and things like that but if if it can physically crush through the material with two teeth um, it'll do twice as much damage every time we bite it. And it gives us more of an opportunity to get critical components like batteries. And and you imagine trying to bite onto someone with exposed wheels with a single tooth. It's actually quite hard to get a good bite and grip them unless you're just in the right spot. With two, you're more likely to grab that wheel um, or, or grab that chain or belt or, or whatever on there. So, um, yeah, I, I don't really know why it looks... Why it looks sort of more damaging when there's one at times. Um, maybe because it, it's a chunkier tooth on there, maybe. Open to mouth. We went single tooth for Gruff, didn't we? But in hindsight, we, we didn't need to go single tooth. It, it went through there like butter, didn't it? Um, I think we just Yeah, I think there'd have been a lot more damage to Gruff if we'd have gone with two teeth on there. Oh, interesting, interesting. Um, okay, so Matt Lampett, has the hindsight is twenty twenty question. Um, if you could go back in time to the moment Ribot was stuck, what would you do differently now, if anything? I think the only thing from a personal perspective is just reposition the robot to be right behind them and have the jaw at the right height. So if they came free, um, they would come loose. It, it's one of those things where it was a really strange one. And the first time I've been a little bit perplexed in a battle, because we started it, you've got the adrenaline, it's the round of 32, you know you lose and you go home. There's a hell of a lot on the line. You start the fight and all of a sudden the fight's potentially over because somebody got stuck in the floor and the two robots haven't even touched each other yet. And there's that real confliction of going, but all these people are being waiting for an hour to watch this fight and people are being 
tuning in on TV to watch this, and this is what we're going to be remembered for. And that, that was the case with Black Drag, with um, Blacksmith before, where you go, we put all this work into this robot, and we're going to get remembered for being stuck in people. Like nobody remembered all the effort that we went to being there. So you're like, well, we need to do something so there's some kind of contact. But well, that, that's why we sort of nibbled them slightly, wasn't it? But we, they thought that we'd gone through, we'd bitten them, but couldn't get through. But we just made the teeth just pierce it, and then sort of let them go, and thought, well, we wanted to make it look as if something's happening. Put the pressure on, but I thought we were on top of the gearbox or something. So we just like, okay, well, it's gone through something. That's that'll do. I think if we'd gone a bit further back, the batteries were there. But yeah, the batteries were right along the back. We could have gone straight through. But the thing is yeah. that the robot, got, the robot team had just rebuilt from a fight and this had, had their lipos go up and completely burnt out the machine as well. And it had asked us if they do get stuck, can we not sort of uh, can we not pierce them because they've they can't afford to do a full rebuild after the last bit and they're running out of spares and and all the rest, um, which is fair enough. And to be fair, we'd appreciate the same if we were obviously stuck and we, we're not getting out. If a spinner came and tore through the back of us and set the robot on fire, we'd be pretty gutted about it. So there's there's a mixture of things going through your mind at the time and we were sort of switching between what we should really do. And that James said, we made the mistake of not... Um, not we sat sort of around the side of them rather than the back, which was a which was a bad idea. And maybe we should have sort of just nibbled them a bit, pulled almost pulled them out and slammed them into the wall and given them a good bite to make it look like something was was happening, but to guarantee that we had control. Um, and we made a mistake then. But the thing for me after that was that once, I, th- I think we still had a chance after that, um, but I think because of the sort of sitting on the spot and trying to get them moving took for myself anyway, went from having adrenaline from a fight to just getting a bit frustrated. And when that adrenaline went, you sort of, you don't, you then start making decisions that you wouldn't do normally um, when it comes to just pure frustration rather than actual sort of good energy for, for trying to win. Um, and, and that's where we, that's where we started making some mistakes. And, and went head on instead of just persevering with trying to keep going around and hoping they'd make a mistake at some point. We, we should have made a point of it, really. In hindsight, you go, we, we should have just like done some spins off in the corner and do some like, just some like twirls around. Just go, well, if you're not going to fight, then we'll just, we'll just start up over here and have some fun. Yeah. Just to try and make a point of it to go, come on, we need to, we need to get this sport sped up and not slowing down. But I get it. I know why they're doing it because the, you know, they're trying to win, and that's the way that you win. Um, yeah, so I think there's just it was one of those things where I think we just lost a bit of our concentration. And that I think as soon as they were stuck in the floor, it it's sort of normally you're zoned in, you can see exactly what the opponent's doing, you're, you're hypersensitive to how the robot's performing. And as soon as they were stuck in the floor and the fights had only just started, all of that just drains away, and you get back to sort of like a normal mentality and a bit confused again. Well, what do we do about this? All these people are here watching, and and the robots just stuck in the middle of the arena, and the two robots haven't it. Like at least if we'd had a thirty-second battle or a minute of going back and forth, and then they got stuck. Well, then there we go. We've won that. 
but to happen for it to happen without any contact, you know, well, what do we do? We don't want to leather into them because it's that's pretty unsporting. I know that if we were stuck and out, we'd be a bit like, well, why'd you do that? We were already out. So it's, you know, and, and they, at the end of the battle, they repaid that, um, they repaid that uh, respect in that we were upside down and they could have just gone for it just to make sure that they got the win, but they didn't. And that shows true respect for other sports people. Actually, Grant told me off at the time because as, as soon as we were upside down, I already knew that we'd lost. So my mind went straight to, well, I wonder what works still. So I started like playing with the hydraulics and seeing if the self-writer works. And that, that obviously started tilting the robot and Grant would say, stop, stop, they're going to hit us again. <laughs> Is that all you <laughs> Yeah, I, I was more interested in what was working. Yeah, I I think uh you know they they played that audio where David was like, if you're still moving, I'm gonna come hit you. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I was playing with the hydraulics. I was trying to see if like I could see. Oh, everything's still working. When then Grant was saying, "Stop! They're gonna hit us again." We're like, oh yeah, we're still in the battle. Like we knew that we were out. Like, there's no point in self writing. Uh, once the match finished, we just self-righted just so it was like, the right way up so you can switch it off. Um, but you get to a point where you're like, yeah, we're, we, we've lost this. Yeah, there's no coming back from having the front torn off. And yeah, and the head was loose at that point. So yeah, there was no coming back from it. So there was no point in taking anything else. But you know, if, if you were in the grand final, would they have done the same thing or would they have just given it one more to make sure that they'd won? But to be fair, if it was a grand final, we'd have we'd have self-righted, I think, and uh, we'd have just yeah. gone for it, regardless if we got the, the robot completely destroyed. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a different mentality at that point. But to to be completely honest, at, at that point, I think I've gone from excited at the start of the fight through to being frustrated that we hadn't had any sort of proper contact and 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 trying to get something that yeah we made some silly mistakes, unfortunately. So. Next time, I think it's it's a case of making sure that we don't leave any, we we don't need to needlessly cause a load of damage when they're stuck, but we could have positioned ourselves to to cover that gap um, to make sure they couldn't get loose without being bitten. But I think that that loss though was the first time that I could actually look back and go, actually we were undefe- we've lost one fight here at BattleBots. That's way better than I was expecting way better than we'll probably ever do again at BattleBots. Um, so it was because we were out of that moment, I think sort of early on in the battle, we were out of that moment of being super focused on it. It's allowed me to enjoy the end of the battle rather than be really disappointed and out. It, it was nice to go. You know, no, well, I didn't. <laughs> well, I, I was just thinking, well, you know, we've gone 4-0 and, and we've, that that's a pretty incredible thing to achieve with that robot. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the only the only good thing for me about the whole thing was that we had proven what Quantum could do and it did perform as we wanted it to perform up, up until that point. And, and even then the robot performed, um, but we didn't. And so that, that was the only reason for me, whereas it didn't feel quite so bad going out in the round of 32. If, we had, if we'd had a, a, like a, a 2-2 sort of, win-loss record going into the round of 32, I think I'd have been really disappointed with, with going home at that stage. But, um, but yeah, it, it's it's always frustrating when you look, at, look back at it and think just a slight alteration to what we did 
could have progressed us through the competition quite a lot further. But hats off the robot though, mate. That's a really tough robot. And had they have not got stuck in the floor, it was always going to be a challenging fight. Mm. I think we would have been better prepared mentally if they if they didn't get stuck in the kill saws and and it was just the fight as it was. I think we would have performed better. Um because we would have had that focus. I think that the whole kill saw slot, being stuck in the kill saw slot kind of knocked us out of that focus. And you know what, if if you'd said to me before BattleBots that we would only lose one fight, that would either mean that we were undefeated in the tournament in the thingy or we were champions. So that that's something I'm really pleased with. And I don't think that's going to happen again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think all of that context to understanding you know, the, your mindset and, and everything that kind of went into that match is is really helpful to know. And, you know, I I think that like if you replayed that match 50 times, like that was just kind of a freak thing that happened. And, you know, you'd probably end up with a whole bunch of different outcomes, uh, you know, if you ran that through a simulator and it's just... You know, it was just a freak thing that happened. I think it, it was just the timing of it as well. It happened so quickly at the start of the match that it just was like, oh, well, what do we do now? We've never had this happen before where there's been no fights, but we could just win it by sitting still. We can't. It, it was like you never prepare for that as a, yeah. as a thing. And when it happens to you and the cameras are looking at you, you feel pressure to put on a performance you've got hundreds of people people in the audience they've spent money and they've come to watch you perform and we've spent months designing and building and putting every bit of ourselves into making that thing and then to come out and not perform and midway through the fight say oh what do we do now it's kind of yeah really odd and i think it's just one of those things it's a learning thing for us to um you know, we're, we're normally pretty hot on keeping focus, but it's just one of those things that we can still look back and be pleased with how we performed and people's reaction to the robots being really nice, which is ultimately the aim for me. Yeah. And I mean, you, you, you showed above and beyond what quantum can do and what it's capable of. And uh, I, I think everybody was so, so happy to see it back in the competition and, you know, we saw other bots who had to take a few years off who maybe struggled to kind of keep up with the competition, but for quantum to have a few years, not there. And then to go four and O is a huge, huge Testament to you both and to the design. And, um, it, it was so fantastic to see. Um, all right. Three, like for fun questions <laughs> as we wrap this up. Um, the first is from Alex pick builder of Zane at NHRL. And he asks, what is quantum's favorite food? Lithium. <laughs> Love it. Um, important question from Daniel Tuffin. Where can I buy myself one of those sweet long sleeve quantum shirts? Well, we only made enough for ourselves, but we will be opening a um, spoof Walmart-esque shop um, for 48 hours. We're going to have some quantum homewares, everything from little quantum head sculptures to <gasps> bits of robots and quantum clock. 
there's going to be some interesting stuff in there. Yeah, we we might even if we get time, we might even make the sterling silver uh, little heads miniature as well. Um, well, let us know when that happens, and and we'll share it on our uh, our uh, Facebook page and get the word out because that sounds incredible. The, the only thing is, it's it's not worth doing it from a financial point of view because yeah. to make a third scale quantum head is actually a massive amount of work. <laughs> yeah, but we thought it'd be fun to set up a IKEA website with the quantum homewares in. I love it. Uh, and then uh, to wrap up, uh, let's have a reflective question for Michael Wise. What is your favorite win and your favorite loss across your whole career? Mine was probably the the most sort of surprising win for me early on was the two barbecue fight that we had with the first first Spectre. Um, winning that championship was was completely unexpected for us. Um, so that that's probably yeah that that first King of Bots was probably sort of the, the highlight really because that was an entire new bot. It was it's the first heavyweight we built from the ground up. Um, we've helped lots of other teams build bits of their robots and help design machines, but that was like the first from the ground up. So it was a big uh, that that was a big achievement for us. Um, it was it was really nice when we went to King of Bots two. We well in King of Bots one final, the red drum spinner that we were fighting, we managed to bite straight through their batteries and got some really good video and shots of their robots in big plume of flames going across the arena. And we managed to do exactly the same in uh, in King of Bots two, <laughs> and so that that was that was quite cool. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's. It's hard to say what the favourite sort of standalone fight is, um, but yeah, I, I think it's probably that two barbecue fights was was my favourite. I think there's been quite. A, I like being the underdog. I like having that crusher because any spinner is really difficult. Um, as Grant said, that two barbecue one was probably the first time that I felt actually we've got a decent combat robot here. And then the final, the way that we won it was almost like a perfect um, perfect showcase of what Spectre was. The way that we were like searching for the batteries in the back of the robots and we found them and you knew that as soon as that first whisper of smoke, we knew that, that it was just a matter of time. And and the, the context of that fight was... Just before it, there had been another fight and somebody had leaked hydraulic oil all over the floor. So it was really slippery. And the TV show held up production for about four or five hours to allow the Chinese team to make and test all these forks. And they, wow. So we were standing next to the entry queue like four or five hours in advance and they just kept going to the test box, trying it and then going off and making new forks. So the build-up to that first World Championship final was so high pressure and you had that hydraulic oil slick in the, in the middle of the arena. To win it the way that we did was, was almost fairy tale like from a crusher perspective. To be the first crusher to win anything since Razor was, was really nice and to have Ian there come up and congratulate us, it, it was very surreal. 
but it, there's been quite a few others um, beating Emulsifier. I was, was going to say Emulsifier is probably one of the big ones. It was the first time that we'd taken on a, an American vert, which is a traditional big vert, which could have completely annihilated the robots. One of the hardest hitting verts there. And we took the impacts and we still stuck it to him. And that was the first time I think people went, geez, Quantum's actually a good, a good BattleBot robot. Yeah. It's not just kind of a champion in some other kind of country where all the robots were no good or whatever. It's the first time that people go, oh man, Quantum's actually a serious bit of kit. So that, that was really, I think that emulsifier fight for me was was one where we go, that that's finally showed what what we can do. But it gives you a lot of confidence in the machine, doesn't it? When you when you know yeah. you're going to take hits from these spinners that we can use the weapon as armor so that, effectively in this remember the um that they came alive just at the end of the battle. They they were dead for like twenty seven seconds, but they just they, they weren't counted out and then they just came back and was like, go, go again. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that was like a classic example of where we were focused until the very last second because we were straight on them, but their last impact, it nearly flipped the robot and it actually cracked the um, the hydraulic pump mounts failed on that last hit. So if that hit had flipped us over, we would have lost that fight. Um, so, we, yeah, we lost hydraulics at the end of that and uh, we, we didn't have a spare one, so we were like, okay, we're well, well, kind of out now because we, we don't have anything. And then we remembered back in 2019, we gifted one to Trey. And <laughs> so we said to Trey, oh, have you still got that? I said, yeah, it's hanging on my wall. And so he had it flown over from his house. His wife packed it up and shipped it over. And we got it all prepared and uh, managed to get it ready for the robot fight. And, um, yeah, that, that was pretty cool. That's wild. <laughs> that's really cool. But otherwise, that would have been us out. Like that's yeah. Wow. Well, we we did. We ended up. It took a while, but we ended up uh, making a, a hard ox version, didn't we? After after that no, as well, yeah. for just just in case. But um, but yeah, that that saved our bacon getting Trey's art piece off the wall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was all in. Gave it to him in a nice frame and everything, so we had to take it out of the frame and bolt it back <laughs> in the robot. <laughs> well, I'm I'm very thankful uh, to Trey for uh, you know giving up <laughs> a piece of his wall art. <laughs> we were very grateful too. <laughs> well, James and Grant, thank you so so much for answering so many fan questions and spending you know this time with us. Um, I you just had an incredible season and it's been great hearing about your perspective and your design process. And I, I, I just think it's so um, informative and uh, I loved hearing about it. So thank you again so much for everything. And uh, you know, we really hope to see you again in the battle box again soon. Uh, thank you very much for talking with us. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you. And hopefully we'll be on here again next season. After the break, we'll return with this week's installment of robots around the world. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. This week, we're traveling to Switzerland, where researchers have embedded a soft robot onto the brain of a teacup pig. Damn it, Luke! 
Luke. The researcher. You, you, you want you want me to just defend myself? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> let's just we'll finish we'll finish the headline first. Let's, and just, we'll, just, we'll let's, let's, like, let's, let's let's let the sentence kind of you know like sink in. Just imagine like a, a cute little like English teacup, and there's a teeny tiny little fresh faced pig just sitting there with maybe a little flower on its head. Luke. And then here here comes the researcher with their. Their scalpel and their drills, all right? Luke, there are a million and a half robots in this world, and you chose the one where you have to have researchers drill a half-inch hole in the pig's skull and insert a soft robot with tentacles into the hole. Tentacles into a pig's skull, an alive pig, now has tentacles in its brain. And that's, right. this is the one right. you chose. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the tentacles, they record the pig's brain activity, you know, like uh, and send it back to a computer. Yes. I'm sure they patch up the pig at the end, right, Lindsay? Oh, yeah. So we'll just drill some little half inch holes, half inch, not insignificant holes into your skull. We'll just patch it up. It'll be fine. Um, well, if once... I was cute like a teacup pig, maybe, you know, who knows? <laughs> uh, once inside the mini... <laughs> Jesus, Luke, once inside the mini pig skull cavity, the robot spread out its tentacles and attached itself <laughs> to the pig's brain, where it was able to record the pig's brain activity. The researchers say similar robots could be used in the future to treat people with epilepsy and nothing else, just just a nice, innocent application for treating people with epilepsy. They're suggesting that we 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 treat people with epilepsy with just a, a torture <laughs> is this like that far removed from like you know just you know 1950s lobotomies i don't know well it's like all right maybe they can help 15 people with epilepsy but now they have to help 50 million people with just clinical depression because <laughs> of these poor little teacup pigs i can't believe that you you made me talk about this I mean, uh, listen, the teacup pigs, they, they had it coming, you know, like uh, they're they're tiny. They, you know, they reproduce in great numbers and they're just easier to keep in cages, you know, than the big pigs. <laughs> you know why teacup pigs? Uh, because American coffee pigs, they're much harder headed. <laughs> They move a lot more quickly too. No, no, definitely you can, not. You can you can keep like a little bucket, like a little little wicker basket of like fifty test subjects, you know, just in like a little laundry hamper, and you can just, you know, save a lot of money on on lab costs, you know. Teacup pigs. Every single one of those those pigs got sent to the McMuffin factory afterward, you know, just egg egg McMuffins all all around, you know. I think a teacup pig makes about like one sausage patty. Oh I hope God. they take the soft tentacle robots out first. <laughs> <laughs> this this is the kind of technology, the kind of dystopian technology that uh, you know, uh, flat earthers, you know, just love to uh, to latch onto. You know, because if you can, if you could swallow something like this, and it can spread out its tentacles inside of you, and did you uh, really you know, have to latch say, your brain? Did you really have to say latch thing. onto? No. Yeah, yeah, you know, like with with the little soft tentacles, Chris. 
I guess I'm a flat earther now. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought I'd say it, but if uh, being dubious about tentacles attached to your brain cavity uh, makes you a flat earther, sign me up. I was going to say... Luke, that's quite a that's quite a that's quite a like association to make. I'm just you saying, know, r- globe earthers are those ones that want the tentacles in their brain. Yeah, globe I, earthers. I don't know about that, buddy. Globe earthers are eating about fifty teacup pigs a year. Okay, all right. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> the the sausage egg McMuffin is you know America's breakfast sandwich for a reason, Kyle. Here's here's what I'm surprised by about this whole thing. Teacup pigs are real? I thought that was just like a, a pet store fake no, thing. No. Kyle, you want to know what's really messed up about the whole teacup pig industry? And listen, Copperhead team member and noted giant pumpkin farmer Chad New, keep me honest here. Okay, uh, send us send us a, a, an email after this. But uh, teacup pigs are just baby pigs, you know, like uh, that's what I thought. People, people buy little baby pigs and they're full and then all of a sudden they grow. Like, you know, there's no you... such thing really as a miniature pig. Like, I mean, I'm sure there's yeah. some pigs that are smaller, you know, but uh, no, no. Yeah, but they're still getting up to like 120 pounds. You ain't doing anything within, about within it. Within a year, you've got a fully grown just hog in your apartment. <laughs> yeah, that eats know? everything. And uh, you got to figure out how to get it down, you know, your your fourth floor walk up, you know. Um, you know, just straight into the uh, straight into the bacon truck, you know? All right. Well, that's about it for us today. <laughs> ah, why do we do this? <laughs> Nicole, sorry. And thank you for editing this week's episode. Uh, thank you. Yeah. We'll be back in your feed next week, I guess. Maybe we'll have a guest or something. <laughs> <sighs> you, should, you should just end it on a side. All right. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm disappointed in myself, all right? Bye. 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 <laughs>